I just wanted to. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Well, no, I, I just wanted to preface this by saying that I don't know if you're going to want to actually, you know, I don't know if I'll have anything useful to say this time. I just, uh, I believe in synchronicity and uh, I've been looking at John Mark Comer stuff a lot um, right recently because my church is really, you know, I don't know if you remember, I'm a, I'm a pastor um, and uh, there is a uh, spiritual formation has become, you know, is very big in a lot of folks in my community. We have a lot of deconstruction people. And John Mark Comer is a name that's been going around quite a bit for the last several years. And he just did that interview. I watched that interview and I was trying to like parse through my own kind of like weird tension I was feeling about it, um, which <laughs> I would love to talk to you a little bit about that. Uh, but then I found that you had a video, you had done a video a few weeks back on it. Um, and uh, I found, yeah, I found your your commentary on it both like, helpful and also like i was like oh man i need to i need to talk with i need to talk to him about this and then i happened to go on your conversations calendarly thing and you actually you had an opening i didn't even it'd been it probably been two years since i even looked to see if there were any openings and there happened to be an opening so oh synchronous okay things are lining up here so i decided wow <laughs> well i will tell you first of all they you should um We'll have to find we'll have to find the link to our first conversation. We can put this below to give people context because yeah. um and then also it's a it's a funny thing that happened. I recently I recently so there's kind of the Randos conversation where anyone can sign up. And then uh, there's obviously other conversations that I, you know, that somehow occur. Yeah. And then I wind up going back and forth with email and trying to find a date and stuff with people. And I remember back in the day, it was like, it takes so much time. And that's exactly what Calendly is for. Yeah, I want to open up. So then I decided I was going to have try and use Calendly for those other things too. And what I did was I altered some things in my setup. Hmm. And what that did was sort of lower the, lower the gate. <laughs> and so two days later, I opened my calendar and it's like, where did all these conversations come from? Because I, you know, I just got finished doing a conversation with a CRC minister and he asked me, he says, how do you do this? Hmm. Because, you know, and he, well, what he does know is that he has no idea how hard this is because if I would just open up my calendar, my calendar would fill from Monday to Friday completely yeah. with randos <laughs> and it would do that every week. And I can't have that. Yeah. So I have I've developed over the years this system and it's that makes this it's sort of stingy and yeah. and and it was just and then I looked at my calendar with terror <laughs> because I had just flooded my calendar and then it was well what do I do? Yeah. Do I write everybody and say oh I'm sorry I had an administrative mistake? I thought no. Well, we'll do them all. So wow. God had his hand in this. So here wow. we are. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild, man. Yeah, I uh and like I said, I hadn't even looked for since our conversation, you yeah. know, but I saw your video on this thing that I've been wrestling through. And I was like, oh, you know what? I really enjoyed that time. I enjoy Paul. I've been listening to your stuff for, you know, I, you know, ever since that first Jordan Peterson video that you put out, basically. And uh, I yeah, it just worked out. So I, I'm happy. You know, I'm sorry for you that you've had all those me. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Mostly pastors have found it, which is really funny because pastors are a tiny portion of people who listen. But yeah, that's but there's another Randall's really amazing Randall's conversation I did with a pastor recently, and he's still mm. 
he's still deciding what to do with it. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, you left it, you left it on such a good note here. Uh, I, I remember I wrote it down. It's like, you were asking the question, what exactly is God doing here on YouTube? What is God doing through? And you said this, and I, I <laughs> whatever <laughs> this is. Yeah, it kind of brought me back to years ago. I think last time we talked, you had been really diving into the stuff about like the egregore and all this kind of thing. Yeah. And these the way these spirits kind of manifest. And, you know, as I watched John Mark Comer, what I'm, I'm relatively unfamiliar with him. I know that uh, several of the pastors I work with are really influenced by him, but it was just kind of like shocking to hear for me, and part of this was like my own insecurities coming up that I'm like, oh, I realize that I kind of do some of these things that he's doing. But when you're looking at yourself from the outside, there's also this kind of like, it, it makes you, it makes me uncomfortable. And I look at some things, I'm like, oh, I kind of say that, don't I? Why does that make me uncomfortable that hear him saying that? <laughs> and so that, that phrase that you really landed on there, I feel like you got, you kind of had to cut off your thoughts on it, but I was just like, I don't know if I'm so curious to hear how like your thoughts have kind of been developing on what you what you think God is doing here on the Internet, because it's something that as a pastor, I I'm increasingly both I'm trying to be hopeful about, but I'm also like, yeah, it, it just it feels like it feels like nobody has a handle on it right now. Um, this is going to sound weird to people. But I think he's actually continuing to purify his church. Hmm. And I just had a, so gosh, I've been on. So this morning I did a two-hour conversation with a colleague of mine from the CRC. Hmm. As it's in no eight, no ads right now, but it's going to come to the full channel. I'm going to yeah. do some clips of it first. And then I did a, a women of the corner live stream in the membership section with hmm. a couple of women and and then I just had a little family. I just talked to my family and my brother-in-law is a member of Park Street Congregational in New England. That is Boston. That is having one heck of a church fight right now. Yeah. And, you know, in talking and think and watching the CRC's church fight and then talking to the women, I think part of what's happening is that a lot of the institutional games that churches could play that really didn't help members they just can't be played in an internet age anymore yeah it's just not going to cut it yeah um people yeah. are going to have to people are going to have to be real and honest and disclosing about all sorts of things and it's going to cause a lot of chaos but from what i'm seeing with a lot of I mean, this whole de wave of deconstruction, part of it is a sort of falling away, but another part of it is a purifying because yeah. stuff is getting wrung out and things are getting tested. Yeah. And usually in a time of testing, hopefully only what's really true will um, emerge. I remember Tim Keller, before he died, talking about this you know, great deconstruction and saying... A lot of what's probably going to come get burned off the church is a lot of nominalism. Hmm. And and so it's definitely going to be an intensification and that's yeah. going to be chaotic. But I think there's going to be I think just the resolution on church is going to is going to rise. That's going to be hard on the church. 
and hard yeah. on people, but I, I think in the long run, probably for many people to be a good thing. Yeah, no, that, that that's interesting. I, I essentially, I think I essentially agree with you. I, I am because we're in the interim though, I sit back and I'm like, I think that, I think you're, you're right. There's going to be a lot of like kind of, um, shed, shedding, shedding away, you know, yeah. um, a lot of bleeding off. I just, I think it's going to be so much more than we think though. Yeah. Oh, and, I think so too. Yeah. I, I think that like, you know, I brought this up last time we talked, but it was a book that really impacted me called the end of the church by Ephraim Radner. Um, and I, I keep on going back to that book where he, basically says that like the way what if as we're called to follow Jesus what if we what if we took that to like the kind of umpteenth degree where it's like we we as a church actually follow him all the way up to the cross and we actually die on the cross alongside Christ and this idea that maybe the way that you know maybe the church actually has to die as the final like kind of gift to the world or something like that something to that effect and it's like you know, um, it's so hard because some of the stuff that like, you know, if I can use the language of trigger, uh, that triggers me about the comments a guy like Comer makes is it, it, it's like, there's this weird, I call it like the scrapbook effect where I, I'm just increasingly around people from a ministry background that seem very comfortable cutting and pasting from lots of different things. Like they're like, oh, this is a kind of neat. I like that. I like that. I like that. And they're just like slapping it, uncritically slapping it into this book because they're thinking it's very individualistic and they're very like, it's just like, oh, it, it helps me. It helps me be a better me basically. And so I'm going to put it in the scrapbook. And, but it's like all the stuff that they're borrowing comes from a broader context of conversation. It would be like, trying to put together a lang like a, a language, a coherent language out of just all the bits and bobs from other languages without understanding the grammar or syntax or anything like that. Yeah. And that that's the thing that for myself, you know, I've been become more and more cognizant of um in my own kind of like practices and behaviors where it's just like, oh, I didn't really think about that too much when I said that. I, I, I use the language, I, I talk about unhealthy a lot. Yeah. Um, it's kind yeah. of like a, an analogy or metaphor or whatever, but it's like, what am I actually saying? It yeah. starts feeling a lot like Philip Reef, his critique of the therapeutic culture was that we dance around in this theater of the medical. Um, like that's what religionists start to do. And I find myself increasingly gravitating towards that. And it's like, well, why do I use, why do I feel like in order to validate my comments, I need to medicalize them, right? And uh, I, because I noticed that a lot in John Mark Comer, I, I noticed a lot of qualification, a lot of what I call, you know, the upspeak, where there he doesn't make statements, he asks, they're all questions, and I find that a lot with, you know, my my co my my co pastors who are really into spiritual formation, um, it's all about asking questions, right? But the question is a rhetorical device. That's you're not. It's not sincere. The question's not asked out of sincerity. It's it's a it's a posture that you're putting on to get somebody to you know to give you. It's like something a confidence man would do, right? Yes. And, I, and I'm not trying to be like judgmental because I don't think anybody's intending that. Yeah. We've just implicitly internalized these kinds of like these behaviors where it's like I'm trying to get you to do something. I'm trying to get you to concede something or come somewhere, and so I'm going to frame what I'm saying as a question when I don't really believe it's a question, but I'm framing it as such. Does yeah. that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And that's, 
Boy, if you take what you just said and apply it to something like Socratic dialogue, because, oh, let's be fair about Socrates. It's kind of the move he was making. And the question is, a confidence man sort of has a grift in view that he's working you towards with the questions. Yeah. The question of, of, let's say, sincere Socratic dialogue is how... How much is Socrates himself a partner with you on that journey? Yeah, that's a fair point. Yeah. So, but I think that's I think that's excellent because you're you're exactly right. The theater of the medical that's really good, and that that health language sort of came in a couple of decades ago, and I think it was an attempt to attempt to deal with pervasive skepticism with respect and a lack of confidence in the church. Yeah. And so that became sort of the, the therapeutic mode of the church. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right that that can, you can cover up a lot and sneak and smuggle in a lot with that. And I think sometimes it's probably sincere. Yeah. But what's interesting is again, I just with the, with Nate Vendetta and the con, the pastor I just did a con conversation with, you know, he mentioned the fact that his father has Parkinson's hmm. and it's actually in medicine right now where that what is which is sort of provoking a lot of skepticism in the modernist frame hmm. because, you know, we we just talked about, you know, we just had a covid vaccine that doesn't really necessarily mean you don't get covid. Whereas the measles and the mumps and the rubella and all those vaccines seem to work. And that was pretty straightforward. Once I got the vaccine, I didn't get the illness. But with this, I got the vaccine and the illness. And then with (laughs) Parkinson's, he just referenced a book that a doctor had written who was basically saying, what if Parkinson's isn't a disease in the way that we think of it? Because, Mm -hmm. and the same thing with autism, which is sort of another one of these things. And you, you know, I wind up increasing as a pastor talking with people who have diseases that basically medicine is skeptical of, and you have the sense, you see the symptoms and you say, this isn't psychosomatic. This isn't psychological. So I see symptoms and you as the doctor are basically saying that's not on our map. So therefore well, therefore what? Because we've entrusted you as a culture with the idea that you can fix anything, but then we also haven't asked, especially with psychology, well, show me exactly what is the kind of person you are trying to help me become with your therapy. Yeah. What, what is the telos of this? Yeah. Yep. And you, 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 you've you been talking recently. I, I've noticed over the years you've been really kind of focusing in on this idea of this teleological bent. And I think it is like to think through the ends, like what is the purposefulness of what you're doing here? Because I also think, you know, he brought up the Myers-Briggs tests, Comer did. And that was another, like I did, I've done a lot of like um, kind of career development training in my past for young people. Mm -hmm. These tests are helpful to a degree, but I became like in my journey with that stuff, I became extremely disillusioned with it because again, there is a, there's a telos, there's a telos, right? There, there's something that you're drawing somebody towards. And once you like, once you 
kind of like scooch them into that lane. It's like, there's nowhere else for them to go. And so like, I find like, I sit around and talk to people about the Enneagram. I was just having a conversation with folks at my church about this the other day. They wanted to talk to me about my opinion of, on the, the Enneagram. And I said, well, I feel about the same way about that as I do about astrology and tarot cards. And they thought I was being like derogatory. And I'm like, I'm not being derogatory. I'm just saying that like people have been practicing these things for a long time. Like they've thought this kind of stuff, but the risk is it's, there's a spirit in those things yeah. and it's drawing you to something. What I don't like is when people, they use these, these ways of self self-realization as though like there's this kind of like Rousseauian na naivete to it, right? Where they're like, there's a natural use somewhere and you just need to get all the accumulation of society off of you. And then you'll find who your true self is. And these right. tests will help you do that. But what they, but that's so naive because these things are part of society that's trying to shape you from the outside, right? But if you just fall in one lane, it's like you become like, you become stunted. It's part of why I think there's so much mental illness in the age of the nuclear family in suburbia, right? It's like your village used to shape your character, right? It was a, it was a given, it was taken for granted that uh, community was a good. And that you actually, like your identity was shaped and formed by the external environment that you were in, right? And so now that we think we've lied to ourselves and said, it's all about my individual spiritual journey with God. It's like, no, you're being taken somebody where by somebody and you're, you used the language several years ago, you started using the language of colon, colonization yeah. for what YouTubers were doing to people. Yeah. Like they're colonizing your minds, your hearts. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of, uncritically like if you're just doing that stuff it's like oh these are psychologists they know what they're doing these are helpful tests it's like no it's these things are shaping you and so that's my hesitation i'm not trying to be like it's why the church began to talk about astrology and tarot cards as if they're like demonic it's because they understood the power of that spirit like that can be the guiding force in your life and once you start like once your day becomes about you thinking to yourself well i don't i'm not going to do that because i'm an eight right Oh, and that person, they're a seven. So I'm not going to even try to interact with that person because I'm at this number and we're going to clash. It's like you become possessed by that thing, right? And you're being shaped by it into something new that you weren't before, right? It's not like it's just helping you develop more of you. It's like, no, it's actually replacing you and making you something else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anyway. and, and possessed people wouldn't. So, so one of the, you know, one of the things that I've always been working on too is figuring out what on earth we mean by all of, but what we mean by spirit and what we mean by angels and demons and okay. What is, what is possession? Because something that is begins as descriptive yeah. very subtly becomes prescriptive. Yeah. And True. especially when there's, so now I've, I've never gotten into the Enneagram and again, I, I don't know anything about it. I'm not trying to not you totally. know, do anything with it, but once you sort of take on the identity of that number, yeah. it, it was sort of like I, I was, you know, around for the whole Myers-Briggs thing, you know, three decades ago, four decades ago. I remember my parents getting that book and we're all filling out the little sheets and who are you? I'm an INTJ, I'm an ENTJ. And, a, you know, and, it, and the thing is that once you read that little description in that book, yeah. now you're you're sort of looking in this mirror and and that mirror is that mirror is looking back at you. And now I'm seeing myself through these four little letters. And, and now when something comes, I ask myself, and, and there's a little bit of question about, 
what's my next move with this? Well, I'm an I'm an ENTJ, therefore my move is this and not that. And it's like, yeah, that that the you know, there's a little bit of mind control, a little bit of possession yeah. that this Myers Briggs spirit has put into me, and it's starting to lead me toward this, towards this thing. And and of course, when you get to a village, well, now suddenly on one hand, there's a little bit of a little bit more security because at least you have a degree of temperamental diversity that's probably in that village. But you've also at the same got time got some larger spirits that, of course, are shaping that whole village. There's no there's no getting away from the mind control and from the possession. We are we are going to be possessed by spirits. And the only questions are which spirits and where are they taking us? Yes. And I and I think that's exactly right. And I, I think I run into a lot of like people who are like, you know, they come from like these non-denom mega church backgrounds and they don't believe that there's any they think that there's spirits and then there's God. And then, you know, I'm like, I always, uh, Michael Heiser, I always want to get him to read Michael Heiser a little bit, just to kind of like, you know, parse that out a little bit. There's more going on there. But yeah, I, I think that you're right. I think it would be, it would be ignorant to say that, yeah, we're, we're all, we're a sea of spirits impacting, drawing us here back and forth. It's like, I think, I think the ancient Greeks, the way that they would talk about, they would talk about these things, daemons. And it was like, it seems as though, there's a lot of overlap between what we call emotions and what they call daemons. And it's like, and we even use, there's like these kind of anachronisms where it's like, we say, Oh, he got possessed. He was possessed with anger, possessed with lust. Right. It's like these things enter in and they totally reorient your perception of the world. And they're like, you have agency still, but those things are taking you somewhere. Right. right? And when we say, when I say possession, it's like, yeah, it's like that internal thing that's taking you somewhere. Yes. It's why, you know, I'd say people can get possessed by nationalism, yes. right? It's, it's this, you're it's like on the healthy end of the, healthy, I just used that, right? On the good end of the spectrum, right? It's like, there is a kind of like love for neighbor that's getting expressed with like patriotism and all that kind of thing. But when we say nationalism, a lot of times what we mean is there's this added layer of like control that the spirit of the thing has grabbed you. It's no longer you're caring about people. You are now like, you're caring about the spirit, America, the American spirit. It's like, mm, we got to hold on to that. Right. And uh, yeah. So, but we're, we're, we're a sea of those things. I think with the Christian, it seems to me, and correct me if you think I'm off on this, but it seems to me the Christian distinction has always been that when we say that Jesus is Lord, the, the assertion is not that nothing else exists, but that he has dominion over it all. Right. Right. It's all answerable to him. Right. Right. Um, there's not these other things where it's like, you know, you drive around some areas in the country and you see the American flag and then the Christian flag beneath it. It's like that's the inversion of how proper ordering. Right. If we think about the hierarchy of, you know, you know, influence or whatever. But yeah. And so as, as I look at as I look at the modern spiritual formation movement, again, like. I'm kind of peripherally connected to it because I'm serving in ministry with folks who are very much engaged in it. But it seems like um, it, it seems like we're kind of playing out we're playing out this 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 therapeutic like therapy seems to be replacing a robust like a robust a robust how to say it like the narrative of Christianity seems to be getting kind of like, it's like the body snatchers a little bit is what it feels. Like. It feels like, or I don't know if you watch any like analog horror or anything like that. There's a really interesting one, really disturbing 
um, it's a form of narrative on YouTube. Um, it's called uh, Gemini Home Entertainment. And there is like this, the narrative that unfolds is like there's this alien presence from the outside that has infected the planet, the earth. And it's like, it gets itself inside of things and starts replacing it. And it's like replacing it from the inside out. And the invasion is from the inside out. And there seems to be something really, there's something kind of powerful about that to me, because I think that's actually kind of how invasion kind of happens in terms of like replacement happens. And it feels like as we start shifting out, we start replacing our terms and our like kind of teleological frameworks for like the purpose of the Christian life. It's like, it does feel like the thing is becoming something else. It's like hmm. Errol Bloom described it as the American religion. It's not Christian in the historic sense of the word. It is something it's become a different kind of religion. Um, that's more in line with what classic Gnosticism. And um, anyway, as a pastor, I just, I, I'm probably too overly neurotic, uh, you know, in reference to my thinking about this stuff. But yeah, John Mark Comer provoked that in me to where it's like, again, like, I see, I see that tendency in my own ministry and in the ministry of those around me where I'm like, like kind of like selectively replacing components of, of this thing that I think historic Christianity, like, I don't, I don't think it would have made sense to Paul the way that we talk about Paul wouldn't have recognized a lot of what we're talking about here. It feels like in Christianity. Yeah. I could be wrong, wrong about that. Well, I, it's in, so I was, I was reading, uh, we're working at a new members class and in the Christian form church that will almost always involve the Heidelberg catechism mm -hmm. and in, and so I decided and I was, and I was wrestling with, okay, how, how to help, you know, unlike, you know, if I, if we're, if I were Orthodox, I would say, okay, you all want to join the church. You're going to be a year as a catechesis. And in that year as a catech, at a cate as a catechumen, I'm going to have you go 52 Lord's Days through the Hudiber Catechism at the end. Maybe, just maybe, I'll let you in. Um, it doesn't quite work that way anymore. Mm -hmm. But so I was, I was thinking again, I was thinking about the Heidelberg Catechism through the eyes of this very diverse group of people, some of which will be baptized, some of which have been baptized before and will join the church. And so I thought, I'm going to take a, I'm going to poke around a little bit and see what's on YouTube and the internet about the Heidelberg Catechism. And so then I started getting into all of these books that are supposed to, they're sort of commentaries on the catechism. They're not really commentaries because we don't really write commentaries. We write, well, how, how can we describe sort of the modern genre of Christian book? It's very much in what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a few little stories and yeah. then a a distillation of what we think that, let's say, this Lord's Day is about, and then maybe a little application. It's all these like little mini sermons that we put next to the catechism when the catechism itself was a tool that was supposed to do the same thing, but 500 years ago. And then I, I, I thought, well, I'm going to look for some older ones. So then I found an older one that was written about 125 years ago, and it, it starts out saying, now these are questions and answers, and the reasons that these are questions and answers are because we're not going to leave it up to the people to make up the answers. Mm -hmm. We're going to tell them exactly what to say, 
because the old way of using a catechism was the teacher gives the question and the answer is memorized and given back to the teacher. Yes. That is what how catechisms were supposed to work. Yeah. Now, when you watch people present the catechism, it's much more, well, these are questions. And, and it's almost like the answers are these, these are the suggested answers that maybe you should think about a little bit. And it, it just struck me how, yeah, things have changed. When I was in the Dominican Republic and they were working the Heidelberg Catechism with the churches there, it was much more question and answer because that was exactly what happened in their schools. Yeah. And when the well-meaning missionaries from North America would come to help start Christian schools, one of the first things they tried to wrestle away from the smartest, most educated people in very uneducated villages was, we are not going to do quest we're not going to do education like you received in Haiti, which was exactly the form of the catechism. Here is the question, here is the answer. It was fascinating saying, wow. And so what happens in churches generally, exactly like you mentioned, well, what we'd really like to get from you is your profession of faith is sort of, what is, you know, what does God mean to you? And then if, if anything that you say sounds nice and not racist, sexist, or homophobic, you're in. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, oh man, that is so, that's so interesting. And it's like a lot, you know, even now, and and, and there's nothing to it. Like at the end of the, no, I shouldn't say there's nothing to it, but it's like, it's, it's like shaky sand, you know, it's like, it's, it's really like, shaky when you yeah. hear what comes out of people. Well, it, 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 it's just like, they're like, well, God is love. And it's like, well, we yeah. also, oh, that's so nice. And it's like, well, what does that mean exactly? Do you mean like, uh, oh, I love a cheeseburger? Is that what you mean? Like, what do we mean when we say that God is love exactly? Oh, well, God is Jesus. Well, what do you mean by that exactly? Because a lot of people have really weird ideas about what Jesus is now too, right? It's like we have, I don't know, in, in the scrapbooking, we've kind of like, we've kind of amalgam, there's this amalgamation of like experiences that we have. And it's all the experiences that we like now get attached to Jesus, Right. And man, yeah, it, it just, it's, it, and it goes back to that internet question of like, what is God doing with places like YouTube and with the internet? It's like, okay, he's shedding things off. It's like, well, how does this stuff play into that shedding off? Because without the internet, the scrapbook doesn't compile the way that the scrapbook has been compiling for a lot of people, right? Right. Of slow replacement processes haven't been happening. I, you know, I, I think that one, one day we're going to wake up probably, and we're going to discover like 90% of like the Western church is actually like a form, a weird form of paganism or something like that. Right. It's, it's like, it's like, we'll, we'll wake up and we'll be, you know, on the one hand, we'll be praying to, you know, praying to God. And then on the other hand, we'll be reciting the, you know, I don't know, the, 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 I don't know, the Lincolnian MLK American kind of like catechesis, like where it's like we have all these kind of like nice feeling, like enthusiastic statements. And we're like, yeah, that feels positive and good. But they're just expressions of our American cultural heritage more than they are an expression of Christian cultural heritage. Well, we've uh, had this for a long time. Because if you watch movies 
So in the 1950s, sort of peak Cold War Christian Reform modernity, when church attendance was at its highest, you see that there's a form of, of, of Christianity that is in American culture that for probably most people is sort of indistinguishable from American culture, but it's it's when you watch it and you have a little bit of a theological age education, you kind of watch and it's like, what? That's kind of funny the way this works. And, you know, one of the things that people have often said to me, which I think is true, is, is they will say people don't, especially past preachers hear this, people don't remember what you say because people aren't really that good listeners. Yep. They remember how they felt when you said it. Yeah. And then what they usually do is take some other little thing, like usually maybe what they thought you said, and attach that to the feeling. And that then goes in that scrapbook. Yeah, that's so that's really interesting. And that's a that's an anxiety of mine as a minister. Um, I started after my second sermon, I can remember like I didn't think it went that well. And I remember like I felt like, oh man, it was so jumbled and such a mess. And somebody comes up to me and like, oh, that was just the one of the best sermons I've ever heard. And they they proceed to tell me what my sermon was on. And in my head, I'm like, I didn't say that, did I? Like, I, I, I'm, like I'm like, I'm like, you know, and so you just realize it's like, it's exactly what you're describing. It's like people project, they're like projecting what they wanted you to say. And they hook it, they hook their projection onto your words. And then they export it over into their kind of like, their scrapbook and then it just reinforms their kind of like individualized you know self you know self self journey with with god and god is like obi-wan kenobi and their luke skywalker it's like god's the wise old sage that helps them on their heroic journey right <laughs> it's like... yes indeed <laughs> and and yet lest we you know because part of Part of the difficulty is, and then we're we're very we very easily enter into the trope of these various other little characters you find, especially on Christian YouTube. So we're the we're we're the feel we're the doctrinal the the confessional critics, Mm -hmm. and everything we see, we're just going to evaluate by our little ruler. And what we come to YouTube for is to tell everybody in the world how all of these people are doing it wrong. Yeah, they're like they're like the nerd culture. Uh, what nerd culture is for like Lord of the Rings and all these things. It's like they're pointing out how exactly you're not doing everything right. And unfortunately, that's part of what YouTube kind of like rewards, right? Yeah, it, it, it rewards it big time. Yeah, <laughs> and so and so I find my own. I have to check myself, Paul. And I'm glad you're bringing this up. It's like as I'm critiquing right now. It's like I have to check myself because I realize that you you step into the, the silo and you start sliding down into it because it's like, you know, if you want to, can I cuss on this channel? If you want you to, it's cuss like, on this channel. If, if, you want, if, you, if you want to, you can find that everybody is a kind of a son of a bitch, right? It's like there's something about a person. Is that all you got for cussing? Well, I keep going. Well, but it's like it's like you keep on digging around and it's like, you know. I got, I got shit in my own life where it's like, I know that it's there and it's the wisdom of Jesus, you know, like judge not lest you be judged kind of type stuff by the, by the meter that you kind of measure. So too will you be measured. It's like, 
you know, there's this reality, this hard reality that I think that's part of what God is doing is it's like, we are, we are like having to confront, we're going to have to confront at some point this critical error, right? And because at some point it's like, you'll either be left with a world of trash, like you'll either realize that everything is bullshit, right? Because at some level, everything kind of is bullshit. Like there's a component of it that it, it, there's like bull, bullshittery is like, you know, it's part of the human condition a little bit, right? And that doesn't mean that you should just accept every instantiation or iteration of bullshit that emerges, but it's like, you also have to be like, you have to be charitable. Like the word, the language of charity, I've had to pull myself back so much in the last several years and just like measure what I'm doing through the, the lens of charity. And I think the reason why a guy like John Mark Comer is so like jarring, at least I can speak to, to for me, is that like, I, I am least charitable on some level towards myself, right? It's like, you know, it's like I, I turn the lens inward and I'm like, oh man, oh man, oh man, oh man, woe is me. I'm, um, but then you, you can project that, that kind of like heart, harsh critique on a guy. You, you mentioned like, you don't sense inauthenticity from him. I don't, I think he's being an authentic guy. I, I think my, my, tr the triggering is that he's authentically on his journey. And I start to realize that I'm kind of like at living as though I'm authentically on my journey, right? On my journey. And it's like, isn't it? I, yeah. It, the relationship between my journey and Jesus's journey is like, it, it, it's a, it's a difficult thing to parse. Right. Um, I, I think it's Philip Reef that talked to, made the comment that like the shift that's happened in churches is people used to go to church to understand their suffering and today people go to church to be alleviated from their, like they have their suffering alleviated or relieved, you know, experience relief from suffering. And um, I, I, yeah, I, I sense that in my own heart, a desire to have, and I don't think it's a bad thing. I just think it's like, it's a very different kind of thing, right? To be seeking relief from suffering and to have the kind of attitude of like, oh no, like suffering actually like the, Pauline kind of mentality of like suffering actually we should rejoice in suffering because suffering actually like cultivates a more robust faith right it, it strengthens our hope and our trust our, our faith in Christ um anyway sorry I, I just talked a lot right there no that's fine that's fine that's, that's <laughs> what we, well you talk to preachers they talk a lot that's yeah, yeah. but no but I think your point is is exactly right and part of what happened in you know, during the seeker movement is I think during the seeker movement, at least in evangelical spaces, you now had the, you sort of had the, this, the creating many mega churches began having uh, therapists on staff. Yeah. And, you know, if you read someone like uh, Larry Crabb, so Larry Crabb was sort of at the front end of that and also had some critiques of it too. You know, even as a therapist, because I, I think you get into that dynamic where we have through our and let's 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 be fair about many different kinds of suffering through yeah. our medical technology. We were able to relieve a fair amount of common suffering for people, antibiotics, pain medication, et cetera, et cetera, surgeries. 
Uh, and then through through psychiatric means and psychological tools, we were able to relieve certain kinds of suffering for people. And all of those things were good. The church has long been in the business of hospitality and receiving suffering. I mean, it goes all the way back to Jesus saying, giving a cold, you know, giving some cold water to, you know, a stranger. Yes, absolutely. Yet there is there, there began, I think part of how this went is that clergy began to look around and think, well, what's what's our job then hmm. and so when i was in seminary back in the 80s the pastoral care classes were gave lots of stern warnings that you are not a therapist this is not um, anything you're not educated in it this is not your what you are to do but i remember coming out of those classes not having a much of a sense of well then what exactly is my job how hmm. exactly do i help people and and it was only in in the years of experience with people that i began to sort of learn and it was also in my own experiences of suffering that i could not alleviate or get out of that mm -hmm. i began to oh this is my job with people mm -hmm. Because the truth is, on one hand, as a culture, we like to try to, we, we sort of suggest to people that all of their sufferings are manageable by the doctors, the government, the lawyers, the accountants, the economy, the, you know, whatever, whatever tool that we have as a society to throw at things that all of your problems are resolvable and you will live a happy, healthy, fulfilled, add in all those buzzwords, life. Yep. And it's just a lie. Yeah. It's it's just a bold faced lie. Because people the, the bigger the bigger truth is what Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And it's just as true today. It's yeah. moved around a bit, but it, 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 no escaping <laughs> the trouble. Might take a little longer to find you. But you'll live longer too. So yeah. Like good news is your life expectancy is a lot higher. Bad news is <laughs> it's still going to find you. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it, it might find you when you're 80. Yes. And, and it's like, that's, that's the thing that I've been noticing is people like the, the archetype of the, the why the wise old man is kind of like evaporating a little bit because a lot, a lot of what cultivates wisdom is kind of like painful experience. Yes. And increasingly like you get, I, I'm running into a lot of people in their fifties and sixties who like, they're trying to live as though they want to look as though they're still 20 or 30. And they're just like, they're still like going, going out partying and doing all these things. And you're sitting back and I'm like, you know, they just have to spend more time in the gym and more time with the plastic surgeon. Yeah. It's so, so interesting. And I, Paul, I was blindsided by just how normalized Botox has become among women um, in my, in, in, in like that I, people in my generation and slightly older, it's like, it, it's like increasingly normalized. And maybe it's really? just, I'm connected to like upper middle class suburbia, oh. but it's like just in little ways, like they're not like doing extravagant, but it's like just to smooth out that one ring, the crow's lines that are forming, you know, there or whatever. It's like, oh, it's like. And even among men, it's like there's this kind of strange vanity that uh, is also like 
penetrating our experience of like what we consider to be suffering now it's like now just the idea of age itself yeah. is of like turmoil that we have to be released from um and yeah i i yeah anyway the, the, these these are the things that uh minister, ministerially occupy my mind um because again like as a pastor i look at that and i can't i don't want to be judgmental right yeah um, you're a good guy but i sit back and i'm like that seems off to me it seems off to me that you should be that preoccupied with image but then i think about the fact that i mean people in my community i i have no idea how many hours they spend a day on instagram right yeah and it's yeah. like what does that what does that do to the the human soul and it go it, it goes back again to this conversation about that John Mark Comer was talking about where, you know, he, he talks about something language wise, something that I've seen increasingly as well is people have this kind of like this, the language of like personal advancement. And there's this kind of implicit, you don't get it yet, but I, they will say things like, Oh, I used to, I used to be like that. And now I'm here. Right. And they're, they're really, he, he cares a lot about, and these people care a lot about the internal journey you becoming you know better 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 and that is like internally but it also becomes like an external thing too it manifests itself that way but what's interesting about it is it seems paul to me like it's the exact opposite of what will make your life a life of joy um and that's what stands out to me so much it's like inevitably like he, he talked about those stages in the faith journey i forget what book it was from um but this idea that there's like stage one, stage two, stage three, stage three is described as the productive life, the giving life. Oh, and yeah. then stage four, which is the inward journey. And I wrote next to that as he was writing the inward journey, that feels like a bottomless pit to me though. And then he, there's this irony because he says then the next stage, stage five, it's it from the outsider, he says, it looks exactly like stage three, but there's just been all this deep inner work. And I'm like, it reminded me of something D.T. Suzuki, this Zen guy, once he was talking about an old Zen passage. And he was talking about a student on the path to enlightenment, right? Uh, and he said, when a student first enters onto the path of enlightenment, when he begins, he looks at the mountains and he thinks the mountains are just mountains. And he looks at the clouds and he thinks the clouds are just clouds. And he looks at this, the waters and he thinks the water is just water. But then... When he enters onto the path, the, the the journey of enlightenment under the teaching of a good master, he will discover that the mountains are not mountains, and the clouds are not clouds, and the waters are not waters. And but then finally, when he attains the abode of rest, the student will realize that the mountains are in fact just mountains, the clouds are just clouds, and the waters are just waters. And in you know this business about you know becoming innocent like a child and um, I, I I wonder sometimes on our path to alleviate suffering if we aren't we aren't chasing we're we aren't chasing the wrong thing we're feeding this bottomless with this bottomless pit where really the thing that we have to do is we release we have to you know it's the Philippians two thing where it's like we just become pure servants um the the act of whenever I have reoriented whenever I'm praying about myself I find that darkness starts setting in mm. where it's like I just become overly introspective thinking about me 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 but the power it's hard to explain what the power is 
that you experience when you are praying for other people. Like something changes in you when you are thinking about others and they don't even know that you're doing it. But when you sit down and you're just like, oh, this person's going through this, they'll never know, but I'm praying for them right now. Yeah. Like, you know, I think Augustine talked about the concave man and the danger of the concave man, the person who just starts turning in on themselves. Yeah. They're just all preoccupied with self, self, self. And my concern is in these like these pursuits that we're entering into that are hyper individual, individualized. Um, as we we might start just living in our scrapbook, basically, we won't live in a church anymore. We'll live in a scrapbook, and uh, it'll be your scrapbook, and you'll be the only you'll be the only citizen in it. You'll be like you know in the Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. The vision of hell is basically the same thing as suburbia. It's just that that one house way out, that one light way out in the distance. You know, it's that that person is all Napoleon. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 you're all, and you're all. I want to meet. I want to meet Napoleon. I better get walking. He's gone <laughs> away. <ways> now. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just in, in the journey. My my pastoral concern, Paul, is that in our journey for self improvement, which on its face sounds like a totally noble, noble call, but I feel like that might be how the enemy gets in. Yeah, it's like you just. You know, you know, was it three sticks together or not easily broken or whatever? It's like, yeah. but one, it's like when we go on on these personal journeys, and you know, therapists, no knock to anybody who's involved in therapy, but I was involved in film and you know, the, you know, that world for a while. People, there are a lot of people out there, a good number of them, who therapists are their hired friends. Like they oh, don't yeah. have, they don't have friends, and so you're paying somebody to be your friend, and functionally, the therapist is doing for you what friends used to do for people yeah. right they were they were a place for you to talk yeah. and the problem is is that you know now it's just part of the economy now and uh it changes the spirit of the thing and it disconnects you from because it's a one-way it's a one-way street yeah. right um and so anyway that's th those are some of my concerns and i i again i don't want to be uncharitable because I agree with you, I think John Mark Comer, he means he he's doing well. And all, all of us in ministry, we mean well when we engage with these things. It's just like the, the prayerful process of discernment is so, so challenging uh, when we, you know, yeah, we, we, we consult these things from a very pragmatic lens. Even, I mean, I don't know where you are with Jordan Peterson now, um, but I have to confess that one thing that as I in reflection that's alarming to me about some of his orientation towards Christianity is that it he's doing so I mean he even used to say this he's looking at through philosophically through a, the lens of a pragmatist which is you know the old the old what's the cash value of the thing right what can it do for me and that's just that's a complete shift in Philippians 2 spirit which is like what can I do for other people right um and uh anyway <laughs> i don't i don't know if you watch uh chad the alcoholics channel but chad had a conversation with neil two-hour mm. conversation this little corner is generating so much youtube content i i sometimes think it's like miss it's like agent smith in the third matrix movie that just kind of i wonder if this little corner is going to keep growing and growing and growing and it's gonna it's it's in a race with ai to fill up youtube but um <laughs> 
but Chad was Chad was reflecting on very similar lines to what you were just doing now in terms of because he was he was in AA and he was working AA and it was just sort of like stay sober serve others and he yeah. was he was wrestling with well where why does that serve others thing why is that in here because yeah. certainly and sort of in kind of the maxing phase well yeah uh being a being a being an alcoholic that's a problem so you really want to address that but if you go AA, you go to AA to get sober and you just leave sober, there's this other piece that didn't seem to have any reason to be connected. And uh-huh. so then Chad was just reflecting on it. And, and he said, but the funny thing was that when I was actually serving others, I was being changed. Yeah. And he was looking for the transformation from, you know, you go to AA because your life has become unmanageable. And, and, and you, you come to the realization that, you know, there needs to be a power higher than yourself who can deliver you from this. And so that, that I'm here to get off. I'm, I'm here to no longer be an alcoholic. Okay. So here, try this. (laughs) No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not (laughs) serving others. That's costly, painful, troublesome, and frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's what you need. I mean, how often doesn't, you know doesn't i i just preached on the mark inversion of the rich young ruler and you know jesus looks at him and loves him i love that i love that peter puts that in because yeah. i think i think peter i when when i see when i read the gospel of mark it's like you know luke might have compiled sources but yeah. wherever we get the gospel of mark from that dude was there <laughs> because yeah. he notices yeah. so much <laughs> yeah it it, it it feels like a like what I love about Mark is it feels like it's a, it's a reporter. Yes. Yes. Like somebody on the ground. And it's like, and that's why like, yeah, the, all, everything that he says in Mark is so fascinating, but yeah, the rich young ruler. And and Jesus looks at him and loves him and says, just one little thing you lack, just sell all of this stuff and come follow me. And the man goes away sad. And and then Peter, of course, feels insecure. I've left everything. It's okay, Peter. You'll be all right. Don't remember. <laughs> Nobody remembers this dude's name. He's forgotten. You, Peter, you'll yeah. get to get you'll get to be crucified. <laughs> you get the gift of crucifixion. Get the gift of crucifixion. So the story, the the true story doesn't change. Yeah. It doesn't. It's just the truth. Yeah. And so no, that's that's. Gosh, you know, I we could talk all day. I know that, and um, but I'm glad I'm glad by divine providence I screwed up my calendar, and I opened up the floodgates, and uh, you came in, Eric. Yeah, well, Paul, I I'm glad you did that too because again, like um, I I very much, you know, you're doing a very valuable thing here, and um, and I know that you hear that from other people, but it can't hurt to have another voice say it. It's like as a pastor, I look at what you're doing and it's just like, you're, you're doing something very valuable for the kingdom. Um, and you know, I, I think it is kingdom work and, uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus is partnering in, with you in this. So, well, thank you. Thank you. And, um, Walk may God, you. may God bless your church and your ministry and, um, may he have mercy on us all because we're kind of a mess. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Mm-hmm.
Oh, it's good talking to you, Eric. Like you, Paul. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, oh, oh, no. Oh, no. It's being <laughs> recorded. Uh, that was uh, every time I'd have staff meetings at like one of the universities, that was always like, oh, bring it down. <laughs> uh, but uh, I used to come up to Sacramento probably a couple times a year, flying in there to go to uh, Stockton. I had some friends out there. So uh, frequent, uh, frequented your old town. Yeah. Uh, it was a cool little area. I guess. Yeah, it is a cool little area, old town sac. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't, I haven't done the underground. There's an underground tour in Old Town Sac now, where um, because the the street, the old street level is quite a bit lower, mm. and so now actually the street level of Old Town Sac is is a little bit higher now. So there's a whole underground area there. So I I love that kind of stuff. I uh, there's like if you ever go to Tombstone, Arizona, there's actually a hidden like underground tour that you can take down there. You have to find the right person to ask, but uh, yeah, there's an underground tour there. <laughs> well, we should we should begin. So you, yeah. you had a little bio of yourself, but why don't you why don't you tell me why don't you go ahead and tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I'm kind of like stream of consciousness sometimes. So I apologize in advance. Um, a little Did bit you have to apologize for that on this channel. Yeah, well, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, a little bit of background on me. Um, my parents were kind of like part of the like Jesus hippie movement, I guess, like in the 70s. Uh, my mom was deeply involved in missions. She spent time in Iran before the Shah fell. Uh, she spent time in Pakistan, all that kind of stuff. My dad was a, a DTS, that is a Dallas Theological Seminary graduate. So he was like that whole scene. Um, he was a pastor uh, when I was born. And uh, yeah, there. My dad was a church planter. He got burned doing that up in Washington, um, and uh, I was born up there. But we moved down to Arizona pretty soon after that. I grew up in a household where we didn't have television. The only things I watched were like Bible cartoons. Um, uh, your viewers might not be familiar with Superbook or the Hanna Barbera oh. Bible Adventures. Uh, my first Bible was a comic book Bible, uh, so <laughs> I was deeply, I was deeply immersed in like kind of what would you call like the, uh, the, uh, the even Bible bookstore evangelical kit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the social imaginary of uh, evangelical Bible bookstore. <laughs> wow, wow. And so, very, very Western United States too. I yeah. Mean, oh, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. I didn't know that at the time. But later on, of course, you know, what's that book on evangelicalism um, that came out a few years ago? I can't remember her name. It was a big book, though. Um, Worthen? Apostles of Reason? No, no, it was just called Evangelicalism. Oh, okay. I can't remember. It was, a po it was a popular book. Even Al Mohler interviewed this author. I can't. But I remember I was reading through that book. and I'm like, <laughs> she's like talking about the history of Western fundamentalism. I'm like, oh, man, that's like... <laughs> That's me. <laughs> my parents were talking about <laughs> my my mom. My mom, the uh, it's kind of weird. My mom was also very involved, like with civil rights. And uh, my parents, my dad was, you know, a Baptist preacher. My mom did not want to be part of the Southern Baptist Convention, though, because she grew up in the South and knew about that whole relationship. So yeah, we were yeah. part of the Conservative Baptist Association is what my dad was with. So we went out to Payson. 
uh, Arizona, which is a small kind of, at the time it was like, you know, they didn't, they didn't have nothing. They had like, they just had a grocery store just open up when, when I was out there. And uh, so my dad was minister, you know, trying to raise a family. I think he was getting like $10,000 a year or something like that, you know, yeah. trying to raise a family out in the small town rural community. Um, and at some point, you know, they had a guest speaker come in and they were like speaking, you know, I don't know, they were doing all the crazy stuff. And my dad was like, everybody loved it. My dad's like, oh, I can't do this. And so he went on a walk that night and decided he was going to apply for law school. And so <laughs> he did the opposite. Most people, they're lawyers and they feel bad and become pastors. <laughs> he, he was a pastor, felt bad and became a lawyer. And so we moved down, he went to law school down in uh, Tucson. So we uh -huh. moved in and uh, lived down there for a long time. Um, spent, a, I was, you know, lived in a pretty like diverse uh, cultural context. Yeah. Uh, I was, uh, I, my mom tried to get me to enroll in a, they had magnet schools is what they called them down there. It was like kind of these places where they let you kind of like explore sciences and arts a little bit more in a more focused manner. They wouldn't let me go there because I, uh, I offset my, school's demographic there i was like you know they i was like the white guy there the token white guy at my school <laughs> so they wouldn't let me leave but um so went down to tucson lived there for quite some time um my dad was a lawyer there we moved up to the phoenix area i can remember being in about four third fourth grade and thinking to myself as i was looking at all the church kids my parents were making me hang out with thinking to myself that this church stuff is kind of malarkey right I can remember, like, I was really into UFOs, aliens. Uh, when I was a kid, I, watched, I was a really strange kid. I watched a lot of X-Files as a child. <laughs> I, I believed in ghosts. And, like, I, I thought Bigfoot, I thought the truth was out there, Paul. The truth I is was, out there. <laughs> and so my first book report was on a, a book about UFO abductions. Um, <laughs> I, ever, I ever wrote. And so um, I, but I can remember thinking that church is kind of malarkey. I can remember sitting down with like this homeschool Christian kid at my house. We we're talking about aliens and he goes, well, aliens don't exist because they're not in the Bible. And I said, what are you, an idiot? Cars aren't in the Bible either. Do you believe in them? And that was my defense. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but so that kind of from about third grade to through middle school In middle school, I became like a skater, punk rocker. And I was convinced church had nothing to offer me. Yeah. And then at some point they hired some like, um, what would you call it? Like a youth pastor, I guess. He had like blue hair. He was punk rocker, skater. He liked all the things I liked and liked all the music I liked. And I was like, that's how they get you in evangelicalism. They like, they get the cool guy, the cool guy who's like, guys, Jesus is awesome. <laughs> and so <laughs> he, he, he kind of suckered me in and uh, started playing in the worship band there. I, I was what I, you would call, what I call a tooth and nail Christian. Tooth and nail was a record label, a Christian punk record label. I don't know if it's still operating. It probably is. Uh, but I was a tooth and nail Christian. So I was like, well, these cool skater guys who are punk rockers are Christians. So there must be something there. Um, so I was a very, but I was a very, as you can imagine, liberal kind of like evangelical. <laughs> I was like, I was the guy who was like, you know, supporting, you know, supporting gay rights issues before people were really talking about that. Yep, in the yep, church context. Yep. Um, I was very much attuned to how white our, our congregation yep. was. Yep. And I was also like really hostile towards like nationalism. This was like early Bush years. So yep. I was, you know, I was really hostile towards, you know, the kind of like, well, Rock yeah, war. yeah, I was, yeah, I was really like really hostile towards that kind of stuff. And I can remember being in high school and sitting around in class with all of like 
my evangelical youth group friends, and they're saying, they're saying, we just got to support our president. And I would get into these big heated debates with them in the middle of history class. My history teacher would allow it because she was a Kennedy Democrat, right? So she was like, <laughs> good, good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that was, that was kind of my background. Um, through high school, that was kind of my story. Um, I discovered, you know, I was really into music, really uh, into performance, all these kinds of things. I started helping when I graduated high school. I helped out with our youth group as kind of like, you know, assisting the youth pastor. Um, at some point, though, I had just like one too many church camps. Uh, they would have, I, I actually went to uh, Hume Lake a lot. You might be familiar yeah, with Hume Lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I went there a lot as a counselor. And I just remember once sitting around a room, everybody was joking about what they called the coming down the mountain experience. And it was when students, they'd have a big high, spiritual high up there, and then they would come down the mountain to real life. And they would just fall, their faith would kind of fall apart. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, you know, this happens, and you're sitting around joking about it. And I was like, that's it, I'm done. Like, I'm just like, so done with this. <laughs> I don't know why that was the straw, but like, I mean, in the meantime, in college, I, I discovered things like I read the Bhagavad Gita, the Tao Te Ching. I discovered something called the Gospel of Thomas. And I was like, WTF, church, why didn't you tell me about this? Uh, I read Waiting for Gutto, and I can remember reading Waiting for Gutto. You've probably read the play. I don't know. I, I should assume, but that, that, that moment where they're talking about the differences in the crucifixion scenes and how only one mentions that the, there was this thief who had a change of heart at the cross, I was like, I was like flabbergasted. I, I was like, how did I not notice this? It's like I stop in the middle of the play, I throw that down, and I read all four of the Gospels, the, the crucifixion scenes. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I go into church the next The truth Sunday. is out there, and you've been. Yeah, hoodwinked. I go to church the next Sunday. I'm trying to tell people about this, and they're just like totally disinterested. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I was like, I started getting hard into the documentary hypothesis. I started reading all the apocryphal canonical stuff. I read um, a book called Jesus by, oh God, what was the guy's name? I can't remember now off the top of my head, but a historical study of Jesus where I discovered Q source and all this kind of stuff. And this was like, I was going to community college at the time. They weren't talking about any of that crap at community college. I was just like, I was just, I did a hard dive into it. Um, I was really into literature. I read Harold Bloom's The American Religion, um, which like I discovered Gnosticism and blew my mind about the Southern Baptist Convention, about how like Gnostic they are. And like, so I started reading all this stuff, Elaine Pagels and all this kind of thing. Um, and that was around 1819. And so from 1819, I was kind of like, I went to my youth pastor and told him, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. Yep. And uh, walked away again. Um, I got really into film during that time, uh, really started studying uh, Joseph Campbell, uh, Carl Jung, um, the archetypes and all these kinds of things. I got really deeply interested in that, um, especially um, his surveys of uh, religion, um, because I also thought like, I began to think that religion was a helpful way of like understanding human narrative. Because I thought religions, I began to think that re religions were true in the way that like Shakespeare was true. It spoke about like something like, you know, there was like a mythical psychological core underlying it all. And I was like, this is why these stories kind of resonate with humans. And so I want to know how to access this so I can write successful screenplays, right? I'm the perfect like <laughs> commodity, like, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, Karl Marx would, you know, cringe. 
Oh, or say, see, told you so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I got really involved in that. Um, I finally, I moved to Los Angeles at some point. Um, I wrote some scripts, nothing anybody would ever hear of. The, the other thing that you should know about me is I've always been really um, suspicious of social media and all of these things. I have a flip phone still. Um, I haven't gone on Facebook since 2012, probably. Um, and so that's like, you know, I'm very suspicious. I don't have a IMDb. I try to, if there is anything uh, about me on IMDb, it's because other people put it there, not because I've put it there kind of type of thing. Um, I, but I did do, I, I did some short film work. I helped, you know, others, you know, other people writing their stuff. I acted in a few like music videos, um, but it was kind of like. Is there acting in music videos? <laughs> I remember for them from the eighties, what acting there was in music videos in the eighties was really bad. Oh my gosh. I was so like, they, my, I, I can remember like one time I was a silhouette. Another time I it was like, I had a, a, like a zebra head on and I was smoking a cigar. <laughs> but Paul, I mean, it's so sad. Like it's so sad. I, my, my heart breaks for like the city of dreams, the city of angels. Right. It's like, Man, there are people, there are some people I worked with who had been doing it for like 40 years and they were still doing stuff like this was non-union work that they were doing and they still thought they were going to make their break. And you're sitting there and it's just like, it's a city of these broken dreams, man. It's like, that's such a cliche, right? But it's like, yeah, it's, so it's true. true. Uh, at a certain level, you just like, oh man, and nobody, nobody talked about the job that they actually had, which is what they pay, how they paid their rent. They all talked about like, what they were aspiring to be, right? And it was like taboo to ask what you actually did. <laughs> uh, but like, yeah, so there, there were people who thought they were really great actors and um, who were involved in these things. And uh, yeah, so it, there was acting, but yeah, you know, it's that level. So I was out there for a little bit. Um, I got really burned out on that city, got really jaded. Uh, I, was, I wasn't even living in the city city. I wasn't in North Hollywood or anything like that. I was out in Whittier, California, because I was like, God, if I have to live in LA, I'm at least going to live in a town that feels like a small town. <laughs> uh, so I got burned out, jaded out there a little bit. Uh, during that time, I was still doing my music. Um, I ended up coming back out to uh, the Phoenix area. I was working on music out there with a recording partner, doing some performances. And then like a series of bizarre events happened in my life where, I don't know, I, I look at it now as like, this is going to make you sound like a tutti free religious guy, I guess, but it was like the movements of the Holy Spirit working in my life. Um, it was like, I was chasing all these dreams and fantasies. I'm not even kidding. I don't know if you heard about that guy who wrote a poem that uh, for a buried treasure somewhere. Did you hear about this rich guy like years ago who he wrote a poem that was supposed to, he was, he was like, he had all these like, like all this gold that he was burying somewhere. And he wrote a poem that was supposed to give you the clues to where it was. Oh, it was God. somewhere basically in the Rocky Mountains. Oh, I heard something about this. Forrest Fenn, I think was his name. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Me, me and my brother had like, we had like put together this elaborate plan to go dig for buried gold uh, one summer. It was so ridiculous. Um, so I was, I was looking for buried gold playing music around town, right? I was looking for buried gold, you know, trying to write my screenplays and make it in Hollywood. And then I was looking for actual buried treasure. Uh, <laughs> but so a, a series of circumstances happened. I had some grandparents pass away and there's nothing like that shakes you like having grandparents pass away within 24 hours of one another and then having to go and like sift through the relics, uh, you know, the relics of their life, right? 
something happened in that process. And I started really like kind of rethinking like what I had been doing with my life. Now, I didn't do anything like, you know, profound necessarily. I decided I was going to finish going to college. Um, and for some reason, I decided to make this really genius decision of going and studying religion uh, in college. So during my film time, I had still been connected to religion. I had worked a lot studying uh, specifically Navajo religious practice and uh, Navajo witchcraft specifically, um, which is like, that would be a whole you know series of hours right there. So I don't know if I wanna get into that, but I, I, I spent a lot of time interviewing people, uh, reading, you know, reading transcripts and reports and things. I mean, it's a very secretive environment, obviously, but I uh, got really invested in that. I thought it was going to be just a writing project. And then it was like, you, you've been in interest, like areas that aren't like first world affluent, like, you know, European culture, you go into some places and it's just like supernatural stuff is not like, and this started like clicking with me. It's like, it's not fake. Right. It's like, you might not believe in it, but it really impacts people's lives. And yep. people, people like believed that they were witches. Oh and yeah. Oh, it's yeah. like, what does it mean if a person believes it and they do everything as though they are this thing? And I started thinking about, you know, Carl Man, Young. They are witches. They I'm are like, witches. what does that, what does that mean? It's like, I can sit back in my like, you know, suburban context and be like, oh, there's no such thing as witches. They're just superstitious. But it's like, man, people that freaking die. Like, it's like people, people die and do terrible things, like in the name of this stuff. So anyway, I started like, you discover that. And that started, that really like, that has always stuck with me. I tell people, there was like a five year period of time where I was like, I dove into that. And it's like, I'm haunted by that to this day. I mean, this is my early twenties and I'm haunted by that to this day. It sticks with me as a, yeah. I'm a career, you know, I'm, I am a pastor at this point, but like yeah. it still sticks with me. So anyways, I decided I was going to study religion. I think in the back of my head, I was like, well, you know, maybe I can use the stuff that I learned. But for some reason I decided to choose Christian tradition as my area of focus and study. Hmm. Um, again, like it just per was provoked in me. I decided, I was going to do that. Um, so I, I end up going in, I'm like in my late twenties, mid to late twenties. And so like, I'm totally like way older than everybody in my classes. Right. Um, but it just so happened that there was this, you know, there was this professor who had just graduated from Princeton uh, theological seminary. It was his first year and he wasn't much older than me, but we really kind of hit it off and connected. And uh, I started, I took uh, a survey of the first thousand years of Christian history. My immediate reaction to the first thousand years of Christian history was like, yeah, these guys were a bunch of assholes, man. <laughs> like, you know, you read about Athanasius and the things that he was doing to Arius. You're just like, man, you're feeling bad for Arius. <laughs> I'm like, like, I can't believe this crap. I'm like, yeah, no wonder I got out of this thing. But then it's like, I can remember reading uh, Origins Contra, uh, Contra Celsus or Celsus, however you want to say it. And realizing that like i thought like christians were just like kind of like ignorant bumpkins who just didn't understand how the world worked basically and they had just like selectively like imposed their convictions through power basically I had this narrative in my mind because i had also read a lot of like critical theorists and things like that up to this point um anything that would allow me to deconstruct christian faith um and but uh i got to this point where i was like i read 
origin and I read first principles and I'm like, wow, this guy's actually pretty sophisticated. Like he's got answers to things that I thought like he, he addresses these questions or, you know, comments that I have because Celsus in some ways is like an ancient Nietzsche, right? It's like, you know, he was like, he had some pretty like damning criticisms of Christianity where it's like, he's not criticizing the truthfulness necessarily of it. He's saying, even if it's true, it's like, this is bunk. Like this is, this guy, Jesus is not worth worshiping. That's basically his argument, right? He's like, I'll concede that Jesus exists. He's like, he's not worth worshiping. And it's kind of like, that's why Nietzsche's Antichrist is still like, I mean, you don't, I don't have an answer to that book. It's like, you either think that Jesus was this kind of like lazy hedonist or you think that there was something good about him laying down his life. It's like, you know, um, anyway, but so I, I, I got into that. And I was like, wow, there's actually some stuff that's actually really sophisticated here um, that I haven't been able to wrap my mind around. Um, hang, hang on one second. I got to yeah. get this knock because I think someone just got out of the hospital. Uh-oh. Okay. I love it. <laughs> um, I don't I, I forget where I was, but I was, oh, Celsius. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, Contra yeah, Celsius. Yeah, I, I started, uh, I started um, reading then into, you know, started reading a bunch of other stuff too. It's like uh, part of what this, uh, this guy from PTS suggested that I read, he's like, he had, had me read uh, Augustine's Confessions, which, or Augustine, however you want to say it. Um, I'd never read that before. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> again, like, then I started reading more, uh, more Augustine. And I was like, oh, this guy was really smart too. What in the world? And his comment about Genesis. And I'm like, like, I thought I had debunked Genesis as, you know, you know, just kind of like fable or whatever. Sorry, I've got my train coming by here. Um, it might get loud in a second. That's all right. I, 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 I was like, wow, he's got some really like thoughtful responses to that kind of thing. Um, I also found Origen's comments about uh, the spiritual reading of scripture to be really compelling to me. It was like something I had never heard before. It was yep. God's literal word. And it's like literal meant kind of like, kind of historical, except when it came to Song of Songs and he didn't really talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I, <laughs> anyway, um, and so read that, read Gregory Misa, um, read the, all the Cappadocians, um, and then also read the Epistle to the Romans. Just my my teacher said, just sit down and read it in one sitting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I had already been kind of into Soren Kierkegaard uh, years before. I was like, wow, there's some really interesting ways of looking at you know the Binding of Isaac and all that. Uh, when I didn't care about any of it, and I read Romans, I'm like, wow, this is like this is the guy who inspired Soren Kierkegaard's writing style. Yeah. Like in the, it's like, he's actually really intelligent. Like Paul is, it's like, he's not just like, you know, this is the Bible. It's like, wow, this is a pretty interesting way about going about an argument. And so read that, then I wanted to read Galatians and all of his letters. Right. And he also had a really interesting approach to the old Testament, which I had never heard before, which I thought I had never heard before, where it's like, you know, all this stuff is signs of what's happening. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the, like Abraham, Sarah, these are signs of Christ and all these kinds of things. Then you read Hebrews. And to me, it's like yeah. Hebrews is the most important book in the whole New Testament to read if you're trying to get kind of like a handle on Christian hermeneutics, right? It's like, mm -hmm. what is the lens by which we read scripture? It's like, oh, you get a sense for that in Hebrews. And I just had never, I'd never even thought of it before. I had always been like under the impression that, you know, Jesus was just this like teddy bear that we all held in love. 
and the Old Testament's like, sorry, that's just how it is, and we got to go, we got to go to war, and, <laughs> and so, um, and I was always really not compelled by either of those images of, yeah. you know, God or of Jesus, because Jesus to me was always like the hardest thing to access in the Bible in a lot of ways. He felt like David Bowie's character in The Man Who Fell to Earth. He was like a space alien, like, um, and so I never understood this, you know, Jesus as like, you know, oh, hey, it makes me feel so good. Um, right. But so I started having this, the lid kind of thrown off of like my way of understanding the Bible. And so all of a sudden now it, I was like reading it again with like a fresh set of eyes. It's like I'm reading like the, the gospel of John. And I'm like, is Jesus being sarcastic right here? That's what it like kind of feels like. Um, and that exchange between him and Pilate about uh, what is truth is really like, I don't know, just very, it felt like a modern author had written this thing. It was like so resonant for me. Um, so really started diving into that. And this was at a, this was at a state university, a public university is at Arizona State University. I had this experience. And then I, then the next thing that happened, I started studying deeply, like the historical, you know, historical critical approach and the criticisms that are le leveled against Christianity and what they're based on. And I'd always just been under this assumption that like, these are really like airtight arguments that these people are providing. And then you realize it's just not. And I knew enough about Navajo uh, and uh, uh, religious tradition to know that probably most religious traditions are grounded in oral history first before they were actually written down. So a lot of criticisms I'm reading about have to do with like when we're finding manuscripts, you know, the errors in manuscripts. It's like, you know, Bart Ehrman and his arguments are like the least compelling thing for me on the planet at this juncture because I'm like, you know, everything that we have in the Bible is probably like inspired by something oral that is so freaking old that we don't even, we can't even like get our minds around actually. Um, and so it's like the documentary hypothesis, they have these, you know, fairly cogent arguments for why Moses didn't write it. But it's like, unless you think that this was all grounded in something that's oral, that's much older than the written documents that we have, right? So what does it mean to write something, you know? It's like, then you get into the question of how uh, uh, authorship is actually shaped and formed. And I read an introduction to a commentary on Ephesians where this guy just like shoots down all these criticisms about uh, uh, Paul is not the author of that text. And I was like, all the arguments made a lot of sense to me. I was like, oh yeah, that's a really good point. It's like, what if he had like, you know, different scribes and all this kind of stuff. It's like, it throws in the question, it throws the questions into question pretty summarily. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that started happening to me at ASU. And then during that time, I had professors suggest to me, hey, you should go to graduate school. That had not been on my radar at all. I was like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And then I read, a, uh, and so I wasn't, I, only, I wasn't even sure how I would go about doing that. Um, and then I started reading more theology um, started reading, uh, you know, the, some older guys like John Calvin's Institutes, and I was like, wow, that's pretty impressive. Um, uh, and then I also read some modern guys. I don't know if you're familiar with Ephraim Radner. Um, no. He's out of Whitecliff College. He wrote a book on the called The End of the Church, which is just a really fascinating uh, historical uh, re read of like new pneumatology, right? The movements of the Holy Spirit and what it what the implications are given what we've seen in our fractured church in the modern world huh. his, you know, his thesis, it, well, his conclusion he basically comes to is that if we are the body of the a body of Christ, as the Bible indicates, it's like, maybe we are recreating Christ's march up to Calvary hmm. and we have to be broken and bruised on our way up to that. Hmm. Um, the scary thing he says is that 
that means maybe the greatest testimony that the church can give to the world is by actually dying. Hmm. Um, um, and so that's why he has this thesis about the end of the church. Um, anyway, so I read that and that kind of blew my mind a little bit. And uh, so I was like, well, I'd love to study theology more. And so I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to like apply to all the best programs in the country, the best. Yeah, right? what, are, the, what are the best? Yeah, exactly. I was, <laughs> I, didn't know, you know, I was just, you know, ignoramus really, but I started doing these, you know, what you do, Google searches, what are the best schools study theology at? And so it was like the list, the consistent ones were always Harvard, Yale, Duke, and uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, and so I was like, well, I'll apply to all of those. And if I don't get into any of them, which I probably won't, then I don't have to worry about any of this stuff. And I can also tell my teach my professors that I tried. Um, and so I applied to all of them, blah, blah, blah. And then I got into all of them. And I was yeah. like, yeah, getting <laughs> into like, Yale divinity is different from getting into Yale law. Yeah, yeah. Real <laughs> different. <laughs> yeah, real difference. And well, once you get there, you discover there's a real difference. <laughs> I was like, anyway, but I got in, I got into all of them. Uh, Yale, Yale Divinity offered me a full ride. And so I was like, well, I got to do that. I'd be stupid not to. And, I turned down money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I go there, uh, I work for their, uh, and they give me a job working at the uh, buying a key rare books manuscripts library. So I go oh, out there. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of cool. Yeah, it was great. I got to hold a Luther Bible that was like from, yeah, the 16th century. It was really cool. Um, uh, but, uh, worked out there. I had my thesis reader was Miroslav Wolf. Oh, wow. Um, I was out there, uh, developed a really good relationship with Catherine Tanner. Um, uh, some really great folks got exposed to, but out there. So going out there though, I thought I was liberal going out there. And, uh, <laughs> I, I even put my, I think I put religion not decided or something like that on my entry form. And I go out there thinking I was liberal and they were just replacing the, the gender science on the restrooms because the previous graduating class had ripped them all down as being like bigoted at the time. And I was like, and the, and the administration was too scared to, because everybody in the administration was really uncomfortable, I think, with like not sharing bathrooms with everybody, but they've been <laughs> And so they, I, I come out there and that's kind of what I step into. Um, I'm out there in 2000. I'm during. I'm out there during the Halloween costume thing. I um, mean, actually, I lived in a house with seven other people, and I had people who were actually. I had a guy who was a family friend with the Christakis in the house, but I also had a person in the house who was involved with uh, the the uh, B, BLM uh, organization who was actually making demands of the administration um, uh, regarding, like you know, their perceived mistreatment in this moment, right? And so I was out there for that. Uh, was down in the yard when all the yelling and screaming was happening. Uh, that was made so much news. And I was like, I was like, man, what is going on? Like, I, I, I was like, I, I was just baffled. And then I started taking like, you know, I started taking some of the seminars and a lot of them were really good. Some of the old school people that you have working there are just like really, really intelligent. There's a guy named John Hare there who's just like, yeah, really thoughtful uh, theologian. Um, and obviously Miroslav and uh, Kathy are both like really thoughtful too. Um, but uh, started reading, you know, Schleimacher and all these kinds of things. But then uh, we got into like James Cone and to Mary Daly and to like, you know, all these kinds of like, like into uh, Lynn Tonstad, she was also up there. So we got into hard into like queer theology. 
And, you know, there was a lot of stuff like that going around. James Cone came up and spoke at, uh, at, at the Divinity School before he passed away. Um, it was the first sermon I ever heard where somebody actually quoted the Gospel of Thomas in their sermon. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, during that time, I started like getting the sense that like, oh, maybe I'm not liberal because I'm not like any of this at all. Yeah, and, yeah. And I'm in my late 20s, so I'm a little older than some folks. But at YDS, there's actually like a lot of second career people there. I can imagine. But uh, everybody around campus was very pretty radical. And then then the stuff with Trump started happening. I don't watch the news. Like that's I never I haven't watched the news like. I will get snapshots of it like once a week, but I remember I read somewhere that like, you know, uh, the Solzhenitsyn quote about you have a right to be informed, but you also have a right not to be informed. And it's like, oh yeah, that seems really smart actually. And I also like, I've always had a punk rock suspicion of media um, and, and it's total. And so, uh, but then like stuff with Trump started happening and all my housemates wanted to watch the Republican debates, which I thought was really super weird. And then I'm watching it and I'm just like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm hearing all the guys stuff he's saying, I couldn't believe it. And then they're all like laughing at this goon. And I'm like thinking about people because I, in the past, I've been like, I've been working in blue collar work. I had like, I had been a janitor while I was working in screenwriting. I had been like, I had worked in parks departments. I had, I had lived in like blue collar America where, you know, the drug problem was just starting in the late eighties and like only escalated. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, listen to this guy. and. I just like, I just felt, I'm like, this guy's going to win. I remember saying it at some point, like to him, I'm like, this guy's going to win. You guys like are laughing at him, but he's going to win. And I remember somebody looked at me and like, Eric, I think sometimes you just like to watch the world burn. And <laughs> I was like, no, man, I'm just like this guy. I think there's a good chance. They did a survey of students while I was there. You know, they said like 99% of the students said that Hillary was going to win. The other 1% said, or said that they were voting for Jill Stein and uh, Gary Johnson. Um, and then the election night happened. Like they had the, the debates, by the way, they had like Super Bowl parties at like the, the, like the bars around town. Like there were people watching the debates, uh, drinking and laughing at Trump all the time. I can remember going down to the basement of this, uh, one of these bars and seeing one of my classmates sitting there by himself watching the TV with the sound off and just reading the captions. And he's like, you know, if you're away from all the laughter, he says, they both don't sound that different. Like, it's like, it's just all that up there makes him sound comedic and implausible. But it's like, if you just are sitting here, it's kind of plausible. Uh, and it was like, that was an interesting moment. Um, during this time too, obviously, stuff with Jordan Peterson uh, came up. And um, I remember in, uh, I think it was 2016, the fall of 2016, um, I, uh, also, like that was going on. So I started getting more invested in what was going on in the Jordan Peterson world when that video, like to me, what was interesting was like, oh, he's got, there's this professor who's being outspoken about transgender stuff. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Cause I was also part of my program, I was studying liturgy and like YouTube culture and stuff like that. Oh. Um, and so I started getting kind of like, that's how I kind of discovered him. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool that he's being bold enough to say something like that. And I, I even emailed him at some point and said, hey, I just wanted to let you know that you've really, you know, you've really inspired me. And uh, yeah, you just have, you've at least one friend out there at Yale. And, you know, he, he thanked me and said, you should read Carl Jung. And I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> 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 and, and then it was like, 
you know, the election happened and they canceled classes. People were crying in the streets, like literally crying. There was a teacher who got up uh, and he read Lamentations in tears. He read Lamentations to class <laughs> after Trump wow. got elected. And, uh, and it was just like, it was such a Babylonians bizarre. have destroyed the temple. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how it felt, right? It's like, you, you couldn't even like, I couldn't even wrap my mind around what I was seeing. Like I hadn't been like a Trump supporter or anything like that, but I'm sitting here and I'm like, not that hey, everybody, if anybody ever watches this besides you, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's like, I'm sitting there and I'm like, what is happening? What, like, these are like adults. And I felt like, I felt like, I feel maybe bad saying that, but it's like, that was my reaction. I was like, somebody told me that, you know, about the experience they had had that day about all the tears that they experienced. And I was like, that's just like so sad that like, and like pathetic that like, that's where people are emotionally, right? Talk about fragile. Yeah, yeah. I, I like, I, I just was like so flabbergasted. And so, you know, that was 2016 and things kind of like, you know, escalated from there a little bit. It was like, I don't know, it, it, people in that people like tension kind of arose and I began to realize more and more that I'm actually pretty like, you know, I'm really suspicious of politics, but theologically you know, as a Christian, I am a Christian. And by the way, I'm also really pretty conservative about my Christianity. Because <laughs> like the other thing that I started realizing while I was out there, and you probably have some familiarity with this is like the, the perspective that says that like, basically start trying to over accommodate the religion, the religion to culture. I mean, religions function like language. And so if you try to accommodate the religious language too much to this other cultural language, it's like pretty soon the religious language kind of gets like subsumed in that and it stops like having any meaningful content to it. It's That's like right. words are just metaphors that we're using to get at the abstraction, right? And if the word doesn't isn't useful for getting at that abstraction anymore, it's like it ceases to be the thing anymore, right? right. It's like anyway, so I, I realized at some point that you had to have a strong commitment to the language of your religious system. Otherwise, you might as well just discard the whole entire thing. And I hadn't seen any credible arguments to me for discarding that thing. Yep. Because the the alternative to focusing in on and committing to your religious language system was like complete fragmentation and unknowing yeah like it's yeah. what i was experiencing especially after the election i was just kind of like this is like this is what you get this is the foundation this is your foundation it's like you are experiencing collective cognitive dissonance right now because your your religious system has failed you yes i remember i heard a i heard a lutheran minister say his experience of it was it was as if somebody found jesus's bones it was like that, that like Hillary losing was like as if somebody had found Jesus's bones. And I was like, oh, that's really in an interesting way of thinking about this. And then I read Eric uh, Vogelin, I think uh, he 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 made this connection between Gnosticism and some of the political movements that he saw manifesting in the late 70s. And that kind of drew some connections to me as well as like really we're talking about counter religions right now. Um, and so I'm going to, I, I'm going to pick the religion that I'm going to commit to. <laughs> I'm really going to press into that. Um, and so all that happened, I graduate. I don't want to go through the PhD stuff because I'm just like, I'm kind of over uh, academia at this point. Um, and I get a job at Arizona State University teaching. And also over at, there's a university out here called Grand Canyon University. I get a job there teaching. 
Um, and so I come out, come back out to the Phoenix area to do that. Um, I know during this whole time, Paul, I haven't had a church that I called home. Um, I knew that I had to get into a church though. <laughs> like yeah. I, the first thing I needed to do is get into a church because if you don't build a church into your rhythm, it's really easy. I mean, we're discovering this now in the wake of COVID. It's really yep. easy to cancel church out of your rhythm. Yep. Right? And so I immediately started looking for churches. Eventually, I stumble into this local church right down the street from me um, that's meeting at a performing arts studio in our old town area out in Peoria. Turns out that the pastors there have very similar background to me and in terms of like being involved with music and kind of like, you know, deconstructing right luckily they reconstructed in the way that i you know i reconstructed as well they were really something that i really became committed to while i was out at yale was the importance of church calendar and liturgy um, i think it's really unfortunate that we've lost some of that um, they were really committed to that as well and really hit it off it was really kind of like just fortuitous and uh, so i started going to this church um there you know there me and my me and the pastor would have a series of lively discussions before I actually became a minister. And I discovered during this time that there were Mennonite brethren, um, Anabaptist tradition. Obviously, I didn't come from that. Um, we would get into theological debates. And my dad was a lawyer, so I became very comfortable uh, as a child being getting into debates and discussions. <laughs> I just remember that leaving one of our discussions and the pastor stops in the parking lot, turns around and says, hey, I just want to make sure that you're not going to leave the church over this. And I remember like, this probably was not the appropriate answer, but I laughed out loud when he said that. And I was like, no, no, no. And I was just so like, I found that to be so like, I don't know, there was something so great about that. I just loved that even though we had this disagreement, he still wanted me to be part of the church. Yeah. And uh, so that was when I decided like, I'm, I'm committed here. Um, and, you know, as I was teaching, I was getting more involved in, you know, in volunteering and serving at the church. At some point, the pastor approaches me and asks me, says, hey, I'm sensing a pastor's heart in you. Is that something that you would consider? And we kind of entered into that process. Um, I went through, you know, all the, you know, the, the process with the denomination, the Mennonite Brethren, um, and got licensed with them. Um, and I'm only, uh, I'm still bivocational. I'm still teaching over at the universities, um, but I'm also now this Mennonite Brethren pastor. Um, which has been kind of like a weird journey in and of itself. I mean, we're not like, we don't, we don't have like big beards and ride horses and buggies or anything like that. We're like a really hipster church. We came into like, we came into this old town area, we revitalized a lumber yard and we have a coffee shop attached to our church, right? We get like, we don't call ourselves, a, we don't, our building's not a church, it's a venue space, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and a church meets there. <laughs> oh, you're such a church planter. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, so totally, right? <laughs> and uh and i moved down the alley from the church so i i can see the church building from my house um and uh really because i really believe in like the importance of local and being kind of connected to a local body and people in a community um because something that just really always exhausted me about uh kind of the evangelical project it seemed like people were commuting 45 minutes to go to church and it's like man how much of life are you not doing with people in your community yeah. right and that's why it's like to me it's like that's what creates the consumer right it's like yeah. the church consumer is it's just another thing that you do yeah right 
um, like going to Walmart or whatever. Or yeah. actually, after COVID, we discovered that Walmart's actually more essential than church. So, <laughs> <laughs> or the strip clubs in California. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I was, so I was, I've been pastor, pastor of our community groups specifically. Um, but I was out here, you know, obviously during COVID. Um, and I can, uh, I can remember being like, um, this was like a hard year and a half to be a pastor. I was yeah. in Arizona. I wasn't even in California. And I can yeah. say, that. and <laughs> I, I, I just remember, um, I am not, uh, I'm not anti, you know, I think COVID is real. I'm not one of these people, but I remember sitting with my elders and really resisting closing our doors. Yeah. Um, because I just said, you know, it takes about three weeks to establish a new rhythm in one's life. Yeah. And then it'll take something like COVID to disrupt that yeah. new rhythm. Yeah. And that's, I, that's why I'm like, Hey, we can be really cautious, but it's like, I just don't think we should stop meeting. Yeah. We ended up deciding as a team to transition um, into that and into doing online. Luckily we were a church with a lot of artists and creative personalities there. We had a people who had live stream equipment. And so we, our church is only about like hundred, 150 people but we were able to put together what I thought was actually pretty like, well, in within a week, we were able to put together our live stream kind of like um, system and operated really well. Um, we were able to maintain com community surprisingly uh, throughout COVID. We really emphasized small groups during yep. that time. Um, but it was like, oh God, it was just like so painful. Um, I don't think like dark, you know, it's like, I didn't realize what dark night was until, you know, you're just like, sitting in your house by yourself like because mm. you know you can't go and it's like i remember it being easter and just like we we're recording our live stream and there's just like nobody else there and i just remember looking out the window and just being like this is easter morning and it's just like it just feels like any other morning right now yeah um it was like so tough um in a lot of ways um we made it through um i think overall our church really responded well to the moment but uh, it, it did leave a lot of, I, I still have lingering question marks in the wake of that. Yeah. Because it's just like, I don't think that this goes away. I think a door of possibility has been opened in the way that school shooting became a thing after Columbine. Nobody thought that was possible. Then it happens and it becomes possible. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, we, we live in this kind of like theater of medical and media. And it's like, Right now, it's like we're all just kind of playing our parts in it. And I really do think that, um, I think that this is going to be a perennial kind of issue that the church has to deal with shutting its doors. Hmm. Um, that's my perception. But then, you know, being out there, I still, I found in my heart a desire to be a church planter still, yeah. or a replanter, one of the two. Because um, I find something really, I think there's going to be a lot of communities dying around the country. And yeah. I find them, yeah, a lot of churches are going to die. Yeah, and I and I feel there's like there's a call to just like try to save and salvage, um, too. Um, so anyway, I've been just talking so much. That's been great. I love your story. It's a great so story. <laughs> it's so cool. Thank you, man. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I so that's I I discovered you um, early on in the process. I think my brother he's a uh, he's a medical student out in Baylor. He he pointed me in your direction pretty early on. Um, when you posted that first video, he's like, oh, you, you might be interested in what this pastor guy has to say. And so I'm not involved in social media. So I'm not like, I wasn't like leaving comments for you or, yeah. you know, all this kind of stuff. 
but it's like i've been following you since probably you know that first video holy uh, cow really kind of got off the ground oh, gee. You were held by the way that you engage with with people and in fact uh i've i've had students come up to me who have started coming back to their faith through jordan peterson but then started realizing that there was like jordan peterson's not orthodox and he's actually kind of like heretical in a lot of ways is how they would describe it to me He's like, and they're like, they're like, we noticed that a lot of the language you use is kind of similar to what he says. You talk about archetypes a lot and Carl Jung. It's like, what, what are your thoughts about Jordan Peterson? So we would talk and then I would always point them in your direction. I'd be like, you should watch, you should watch this pastor, Paul Vanderclay. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, I, I've been, I've been uh, aware and uh, paying, atten uh, paying attention to you. I mean, beyond being a really good pastor, I mean, I'm not trying to toot your horn or anything like that. It's just like the level of reading and like thoughtfulness, like you give to things, is just like remarkable to me. Um, you, you strike me. I, you, I, in my head, I've told my brother, I have told him this. I'm like, man, just based on what I've seen from you on YouTube, I'm like, you're the kind of pastor that pastors should aspire to be. Uh, <laughs> it's like, you know, being in the kind of context that you've described being in. Um, I, I just, um, I, I'm just so compelled by that. Um, dedicating your life to that kind of service and then finding a new area that needed ministering to and just um, seeking that out. So just, yeah, really compelled by that, man. Oh, so. thank you. Thank you. Uh, it it kind of grew. Um, I don't know. It's, you know, my church is small and dying. And so I, I want to be faithful to these people. Um, I don't think the church is going to somehow balloon because of, you know, my online ministry. Um, because churches are very local. They, they're very local and very individual. They're like fingerprints. They're, they, they, they're very organic and <laughs> they're organic. They're authentic. And people take a look at this particular organic and authentic and like, why would I want to be a part of that? That's yeah, it's too organic and authentic <laughs> because what people are, they, they hear organic and authentic. What they really want is mirroring. Oh, I want the church to I yeah. want the church to be a flattering mirror to. Yeah, they want all. Well, they want all the good and none of the bad. They don't want any of the garbage. Yeah. That's not like for me. It's like we're in an inner city kind of area where our church is at, and I was like, all in. So I bought a house out here, yeah. and I was like, I thought everybody in the church was going to start doing that. Yeah, and no. And you're like, nobody's going to do that. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. There's real reasons they're not going to do it. Yeah, yeah. And God bless them, and and that's why you know there's. People are in at different levels and they partner at different levels and churches are sort of, you know, a consensus develops of this is what people are able to give and able to do. And, yes. um, and, and so it kind of, kind of is that way. So now I've been, I've been tremendously blessed. I had no idea what was going to happen after I made those first couple of videos about Jordan Peterson, but the whole, the whole journey has been fruitful and um, deeply gratifying and, mm. and just a lot of fun just a lot yeah. of fun so yeah you look like you look like you're having fun man I, oh I, just, I am i have a great time <laughs> i just love your spirit and energy on the uh, can i use that language spirit and energy he around? certainly may <laughs> <laughs> that's totally fine i'm just kidding i i i've also been like so i emailed you several months ago to, because you had andy littleton on and i've actually oh, yeah. entered into a good dialogue with andy oh good from me um but uh since that time, you started entering into this conversation about powers and principalities yeah. that I've just like, that to me is like, from a Christian leader's perspective, it's like, that's the thing that every 
pastors should be talking about. Right. Paul, like this has been like spiritual warfare, like nuts, like this last year and a half. Right. Probably before that, it's just become more evident, yeah. right? I remember at the beginning of COVID, all of a sudden I was getting called to houses to do like exorcism, not not exorcisms, to, to pray over a house because people were sensing that there was bad spirits in the house yeah. and all these kinds of things. And I've also studied enough about Greco-Roman kind of perceptions of the demons and spirits to know like, there's not, it's not like there's like a guy who's standing there and he's like, I'm a devil and I'm going to get you. It's like the things that we call emotions are very similar to what people are talking about when they're talking about possession and spirits. Yeah. Anyway, but I would love to hear like what has been kind of like, what, what has led you to like locate that as like this kind of like dominant theme, like something worth like really emphasizing and focusing on. Is there, I mean, that's kind of a big question in some ways, but I'm just like, I'm so compelled by your language of using that, of recognizing. You said at one point, you said that these these videos and these books are colonizing your mind. And I was like, yeah, that's like all we are doing now. We're in a culture of colonizing. We're cannibalizing one another on a spiritual yeah. level. We're participating in this warfare and we don't even realize it. Yeah. So I, I'm really... I don't know if there's something for you to answer there. <laughs> well, I, you know, yeah. So James K. Smith, you probably heard of him. He's he's oh, yeah. one of he's at Calvin University now. I mean, he's written a series of books on on um, secular liturgy, mm -hmm. and um, you know, it, it struck me. So so part of what I part of what I Part of what grabbed my attention about Jordan Peterson was, and I think this sort of also comes through Jung, is the, the disconnect in our language around spirit. It's, it's quite frankly in modernity amazing that – hang on a second. I'll be right back. All right. All right. So – So this, you know, this word spiritual remains in our language and people use it all the time. And, and even highly secular, you know, people who are, you know, hard bitten new atheist type continue to use it. And it's like, you ever stop and ask yourself what you mean by that word? And, and I got into this because I, you know, I do, do Bible studies at church and people, I mean, in in churches like this, you'll you'll tend to collect people who are committed Christians, um, but they you know they haven't necessarily thought terribly. They've got you know good Christian practice, but they haven't necessarily thought terribly deeply about all of the Western evangelical kitsch language kitsch that they've just picked up along the way. And part of the way that you gain status in a church like this is you learn to master that kitschy language. And so you have all this code talk that goes around. And at some point, you know, and I don't want to be a jerk about it, but at some point as a pastor, it's like, well, maybe we should, maybe I should, maybe we should start to play around with some of this kitschy code talk and see if we can get under it a little bit, because there's just a fair amount of uh, social bullshittery that is going on with all this kitschy code talk. So 
Um, and so then someone would say something like salvation. And I would say, well, what do you mean by that? And then of course it'd be like, oh crap, why does he do this to me? I'm in front of my good church friends and he's asking me to, yes, he's asking me a question I can't answer about a word we're all using. It's like, all right, but I'll be gentle and I'll, I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave you on the hook here, but we're just going to poke around there a little bit and say, what do you, what do you mean by that word salvation? What do you mean by kingdom of God? And then what do you mean by spiritual? And of course people have no idea. And so I, I was wrestling with that stuff and, you know, reading a lot of C.S. Lewis. And then of course, Jordan Peterson came along and the, the, the way that he the, the breadth of people that he sort of got a hold of and and some of the some of the particular groups of those people people who had sort of deconstructed both deconstructed into you know hard-bitten modernistic rationality like like um, new atheists or into sort of mushy new age spiritualism um, and, and these are the people that he sort of, at least some of those people, he sort of got their attention. And then they start, similar to your story, they want to do things like read Origin or Church Fathers. And, and I thought, now this, and, and the breadth of this movement, I thought, this is, this is, this is to me, I immediately saw, this is one of the more significant things significant movements that I've seen in terms of my adult North American ministry. I'll say it that way. You know, I had seen the seeker movement. I, I kind of came back to North America as that was sort of receding. I'd done my junkets to Willow Creek to Saddleback. I'd taken a good look at that. It never, it was never going to be applicable at a church like this. We we're just never going to be able to pull off the music and the sound and the image and the excellence. It's just, it's just never going to fly in this place. It's way too ragtag, way too much authenticity. And I'd watch the emergent movement sort of split into mm -hmm. young, restless and reformed. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting because yeah. I'd been, you know, I'd grown up in a reformed tradition, but this was obviously sort of similar to some of the hardcore Dutch reformed, but much more Presbyterian. And then of course the Rob Bell and that whole thing on Oprah and that's yeah. so watching those two things coming out of the emergent movement. And it's like, okay, what's 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 gonna come next down the road? And and then I church plants, so we had been planting churches pretty aggressively when I got here in the late nineties, early aughts. And the, my church, my partner, who's the pastor of another CRC church, who had one of the few successful CRC church planters using, say, a seeker methodology. I mean, he actually grew up in Kalamazoo, and he used to cut the grass for Bill Heibel's mom um, in Kalamazoo. That was, his, that was his job in high school, you know, cutting Bill Heibel's mom's grass. So he was, you know, he, he and he was a, he's a, he's a good pastor and very, I'll be careful. That almost sounds like something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very refined. And so and so he had actually been fairly successful, especially in CRC terms. I mean, he'd grown a church into three, four hundred people in suburban Sacramento. And yeah. And so we both got into church planting. And and then right away, like the the second church, the first church plant out of the box, these guys wanted to do a cell model. 
Hmm. That was interesting. The third church was more of a secret church again. And then, um, and then the fourth church plant wanted more of a Tim Keller PCA type thing. And then by the fifth church plant, it was all liturgy and, you know, weekly Eucharist and using that word and uh, liturgical seasons. And, and then these other church plants all started going that way too. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Now, of course, living stands, living stones can't ride any of those bandwagons. I mean, this church, it just can't do a bandwagon. It just, it just way too authentic. Not, you know, just, you can't turn this church. It just is what it is. So, you know, I'm watching all of this stuff happen. Then, of course, Jordan Peterson comes through, and I see all of these people interested in orthodoxy, and Peugeot comes on the scene, and it's like, there's stuff about this and stuff behind this. And I had, um, you know, I had studied, I had visited Redeemer in New York City and, you know, had a quiet little seminar with Tim Keller, with a couple of our, with some of our sacramental church planters. We'd had an in sort of, so we had a sort of a private audience and a chance to take a poke around Redeemer Press fairly closely. And, um, you know, that was in some ways closest to where I was from because Keller comes out of Westminster East. And in the, in the 80s, there was this whole urban missions thing that was happening. Yeah. A lot of it out of Westminster East. So, you know, the Keller stuff was, was pretty close to me. But, you know, we were never going to be anything like a kind of reformed, reformed conservative cathedral church, which is sort of what Tim Keller was doing. And um, and then, of course, Jordan Peterson comes along and I thought this is it's enough in alignment with the, you know, the ancient worship theme that had really developing out of the emergent thing. And and it was he was asking he was provoking a lot of deeper questions that were really getting at secularity. And then of course I made a video and people started watching it and contacting me. And that was completely unexpected. You know, I, I'd been working in this church 20 years and, you know, I, I'm known in my denomination, but beyond it, you know, I don't have a mega church. I'm not on the cover of Christianity today. So then, so then, well, what do we mean by this word spiritual? And of course, Jung, I didn't know anything about Jung, but totally different take on things. So I had to get up at speed on some of that stuff. And then, you know, back to philosophy and, and you, and you begin to realize that this um, phenomenologically is not a, it, it's not a, it's not, it's not a bad approach to this, which is of course, very much the way Peugeot went. It's post Heidegger. And, um, you know, then of course, someone pointed me to John Verveke, developed a relationship with him. So you begin to, so, so when in churches, especially a, a tradition like the CRC, which wasn't Pentecostal, but could be Pentecostal friendly, charismatic friendly, I went in Grand Rapids and in college, I was in sort of a charismatic Christian reformed urban church, which sort of tied a lot of those strands together for me. And just knowing that 
this word spiritual, we're going to have to have a far deeper understanding of it. And by virtue of my Dutch Calvinist tradition, you neither can exclude sort of the supernatural that you would bump in. And of course, you know, black urban America where I grew up and then Haitians in the Dominican Republic and then charismatic reformed, you know, so I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't a skeptic about what modernists would call the supernatural, but it's also got to tie into a secular culture. And so, you know, in terms of my videos, I just sort of follow where the conversation leads. And, and, and so I, I really had to, you know, I've been really thinking about, okay, what do we mean by this word? And, and how does that connect? So, so this week I'm preaching on Paul. He's leaving Antioch after he and Barnabas are there for a year and then he's going to Cyprus. And basically, you've got a showdown between this Jewish magician, Bar Jesus, versus Paul. And Paul, you know, basically curses him and says, you're going to be blind for a while. And the guy turns blind. And this is all in front of the pro council who is watching this. And he's like, all right, well, I, the, 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 the yeah. Paul had, he got credibility. He's got my attention. And, yeah. and there's sort of an easy dismissal by secularist modernists of this stuff as this is, this is, this is legend. This is all BS, but you know, like you, if you're around Navajo for a while, it's like BS, you know, there's, there's a reality to this, but if you've been around enough Pentecostals, you know, eh, they got some BS going on there too, sometimes. And the prophets roll into town and the show comes in and it's like, Eh, there's a good bit of skepticism about that too. So, so you really want to somehow bring all of this together into an integrated picture where spiritual doesn't simply um, deny sort of a modernist frame because people are going to have to integrate this into their worldview as they leave secularism. So you're not gonna you're not gonna desire you're not gonna deny what modernists feel like spooky powers, but you're also going to have to integrate this into oh what Trump did, because that was you know what, however you feel about his politics. Well, he he sort of gave the nation an advanced course in. Um, an exorcism of sorts, you know, he, he, that, that'd be one frame to think about what happened with Trump. Yeah. And I loved what you said. It's as if someone discovered Jesus bones. <laughs> and so I, oh. and so I wanted, I want to figure this out. And my channel for me is a lot of figuring things out. And, and if you're going to silo yourself in, which we sort of see probably, I don't want to speak ill of these people, I don't know them, but in a place like, let's say Yale Divinity, maybe I'm just working off a, an impression, but I see that often because you have to sort of silo yourself off because the world is too big. And so then the whole key is, well, let's have a productive filter yeah. so that some things get filtered out 
and and it's a we can we can work in a manageable level to for the church to 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 deeply work on this question of okay so the holy spirit is moving through your church and and you can approach that language in a fairly modernistic way you can approach it in a pentecostal way you can approach it in sort of a primitive way and try and get at what the romans were dealing with and but but one way or another we're going to need to use that word in a competent way and i've i've found in this little corner of the internet you know with you know say peugeot and his orthodox tribe and verveki and his non-theist tribe and the Roman Catholics and this whole crazy group that we've sort of gathered together here. I think we're having a productive conversation about this and yeah. that's rare. So let's have it. And, and again, I see this very much as a spiritual movement because not only do I believe it's the work of the Holy spirit working through this, but it's also all of these spiritual streams just kind of, coming together and you know one of the things i picked up from tim keller which he picked up from one of his sem seminary profs at gordon conwell was you know revival happens and and it's the work of god you know we don't you can sort of you tr sort of want to try to make an altar on top of carmel and say okay lord you know <laughs> we're ready for you to show up but only you can show up yes. you know and in revival all of the streams come together and there's you know there's new hymnody that erupts there's there's fervent prayer you know there's pious devotion there's you know work with the poor and poverty and justice it's it's all of the things mm -hmm. and um and and the history of christianity has been in many ways a series of revivals with often dying of things. I mean, Chesterton notes that, you know, the seven, the seven deaths of Christianity. It yeah. keeps dying and rising again. And, and certainly modern Christianity is dying. Yes. And it, it, that's epitomized in, you know, the mainline church. Yeah. Um, now, obviously these deaths are never full and complete. They're always, you know, somewhat dead or mostly dead <laughs> but it never yeah. seems to go all the way dead <laughs> yeah there's still a little bit of movement in the body <laughs> that's right but i and and so i saw with the jordan peterson thing i thought there could be a revival from this and i think there already has been to a degree but yeah. revivals come and they reshape the world yes and I don't want to be sitting on the sidelines when the revival happens. I want to be there. Yeah, that's, oh man. <laughs> and that's like, that's the real sense, right? It's like this last year and a half has made me, I don't know, I felt very impatient like this last year and a half for the reason of like, I feel like things have been like ramping up and now we're getting to this place where it's like things are changing indelibly like you can't like we can't go back from whatever it is we've just entered into and i'm gonna be stuck at home it's like you know as a pastor it's like there are people dying in the hospital i'm stuck at home it's like there are there's all these things happening right now and you can't you feel like you can't just be like separated from it you have to be engaged 
Yeah. Because you do, you sense this flow happening right now. Yeah. Um, I, 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 you know, you're talking about John Verbenke. I want to thank you for introducing me to him as well in terms of like just his content. So good. Um, but like he talks about shamans as entering into this like flow state. And I'm like thinking like what what happens like culturally seems like what you're describing is like a kind of like cultural flow state almost like these revivals and things like that. It's, it's when we're all like just releasing ourselves to this something, right? And that can be really good or it can be really bad depending on how you're testing that spirit because it's like, it's a battle right now. Yeah. It's not evident to me that like good spirit is like rising up over like bad spirit. Yeah. And we all seen, you know, people who listen to Jordan Peterson, you've you, you know about like the instances where bad spirit has taken over and possessed a society. It yeah. can happen, right? Yeah. How do you, how do you find good spirit? And we're like an Anabaptist tradition out here. So we're really emphasizing like third way stuff. Yeah. I mean, people who are liberal churches out here say that we're conservative and too reformed. They think that we're reformed. <laughs> 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 I think what they mean is they just remind them of like, you know, Tim Keller or something. Yeah. Um, and then on the other side, the conservative churches think that we're liberal. And in a lot of ways, like, I actually think that's a good thing. Yeah. But we have increasingly, like, out in the Phoenix area, we're having churches, like, getting really divided over lots of issues. Yeah. And right now, it, it, there was actually a church that got on and said, like, the pastor gave a sermon, local church, and he goes, anybody who says that they're third way, that's a euphemism for, like, you know, lukewarm. It's like you're you're it's basically you're either with us or you're against us is what yeah. this pastor is saying and he's talking specifically about social justice issues yeah and yeah yeah i hear like, that a lot and you know you're talking about the young restless and reform we got mark driscoll and his church out here um they actually uh, i've got people who go to that church they've grown by 300 percent since covid <laughs> it's like it's like there's this like there's this weird tension even within the body of the church not even like just culture broadly obviously it's there but um there's a book called broken church broken nation it's a little volume um i don't know if you ever read that but this guy it's a short historical study of the breakdown of major national uh, denominations in the united states in the decades prefiguring the civil war hmm. and how actually these denominational divisions kind of exactly paralleled yeah. like what happened within the country itself and it's kind of interesting thinking about that perspective of what's happening now it's like okay what what is being born right yeah. now right because yeah. i do think that the church this, the spiritualism of a country is reflective of where the country is going to materially be at yeah in fact. yeah um so yeah lots of stuff happening there i think like your language like mormonism i grew up around mormonism so knowing mormon history reading i don't know if you've read d michael quinn uh, he wrote a book called uh early Mormonism in the magic worldview. Um, that's, I mean, if you, if you are a fan of history, like he is like a king historian. What's like, his name? D. Michael Quinn. D. Michael Quinn. Um, early Mormonism in the magic worldview. He's like talking about like pointing out how these revivalists that Mormonism was grounded in, the things that they're seeing, they're seeing through spiritual eyes, that there's this kind of strange like in the wake of and leading up to these kinds of like revivals, people stop seeing just what we're seeing materially, right? Right. Start seeing things of spirit. Um, and I, I think that like, that's really been helpful for me to consider and think through too. 
Um, he looks at like things like uh, sales records for like books on magic in the United States and how there were actually more people buying these books on astrology and magic than there were people buying Bibles in the United States leading up to. And, and it's like, it's like, what? What does that mean? And I'm like, you, then you start thinking about like astrology is becoming popular in the United States again, but also for the last two decades, we've all been looking into these scryer stones, right? These like crystal balls, essentially uh, looking in. And I think of Gandalf, he had a comment where he said, you know, about the lost seer stones. You look in, you don't know what looks back out into you. Yeah. Or in each of these terms, you know, you stare into the abyss, the abyss looks back out into you. It's like, what are, we're looking in right now. We're engaging this technology as we see it. Yeah. Functionally, it behaves a lot like magic devices did, yeah. you know, or were seen as doing. So what spirits are coming out through to you in these crystal balls that we're looking into, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, you like C.S. Lewis, Abolition of Man, he does that really quick, uh, connection between alchemy and science and alchemy and magic and it's like magicians and scientists aren't that far apart it's like they're both trying to harness the power of the earth yeah. right <laughs> to man's benefit yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like and actually historically they have that connection yeah and yeah. so that stuff's been really that that draws that to my mind as you're talking about kind of this like bubbling fermenting yeah. something that's happening um, i've also been uh philip reef has become very popular again oh yeah yeah um, and especially in your reform world carl truman conservative yep. reform guy he used to be cool in reform circles and now he's cool in all evangelical circles because yeah. you know a little book about identity but he's been drawing people back in philip reef which i think is really useful because philip reef's trilogy on sacred order social order is really helpful for also understanding i think the deeper battle that's happening, that's underlying this moment, um, the tensions that are arising. There are these kind of, it's a, it's a tension between a, a one way of perceiving sacredness and this kind of anti-sacredness, which is in a sense, its own kind of new system of sacredness. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's got some really interesting insights that he writes about, especially in um, the, crisis of the, the um, crisis of the officer class and uh, and My Life Among the Death Works. Um, those are books that I've been revisiting because he tries, he is going off of Deuteronomy and the interdicts that are laid down by God there and contrasting that to our own moment, essentially. Interesting. And so oh, I, you're, you're just, just, you're just giving me more books, dude. Yeah, I, I'm I sorry, get, I'm sorry. I get, complaints, <laughs> I get complaints and now here you've done it to me. That's, that's <laughs> what pastors do, it's really bad. It, it, we get we get alone we get siloed out here nobody else is reading these things except uh, us I know. We need to talk to somebody <laughs> well oh well, i gotta i gotta land the plane here because i gotta oh, do yeah, some things sure. but yeah. um yeah. what you know is this is this video good to share you want to preview it first what do you think i uh i'm comfortable with you sharing it um, okay okay totally okay good it. good i'd love to I, I the conversation before this i had a lovely talk with a a woman who's a um, she's she's young. She just got married. She's she's going to she's going to the University of Kampen studying theology in the Netherlands. And um, it's just it's I don't know. I, I love these randos conversations because it just gives me a chance to gives me a chance to step out of my filter and let um, other things come to me. And so this was just a delight. This was a delight. So I really appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate you giving me this time, Paul. And and send me send me anything like if you got church stuff or something that you'd like me to include in this video just you have my email address 
Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Um, so just like church websites, stuff like that. Uh, just just send it to my name at Gmail. There, I just did it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see. Even I'm more even. <laughs> There's been like a closeted like Jordan Peterson community there. That they, they they feel afraid uh, about talking about it until they find out that I'm a fan of Jordan Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> they'll they'll probably appreciate that. <laughs> that I'm being you know, public and outspoken about you know these kinds of things, but. Um, yeah, I, I'd be happy to send that to you. And, uh, and if you get back to Tucson, have Andy introduce you to my friend Rod. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, you actually connected me with him as well. And I tried to exchange some emails. There's just like so much going on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you, if you, if you're ever down in Tucson, make sure you contact Rod first and say, I want to buy you. If you can get him, if you'd say, I'll buy you breakfast or lunch, I'll take you anywhere you want to go. I'll take you to some greasy spoon and they'll sit and they'll tell you stories. You want to talk about spiritual warfare? Talk to that man. Um, He's a, he's a giant in many ways. Your conversation with him was like, Oh, so moving to me. Oh, I got to have him back on the, I got to have him back on the channel. Oh, so moving. Hopefully I, I'll be able to sneak in and get another time with you too. Because uh, Paul, I just, I just value your mind and your insight so much. And well, I, I hope, you know, Vendank of course wants to redo the road trip. So I'm, I'm sure I'll get down to Arizona again. So, and it'd be much nicer to have lunch with you personally. So. Absolutely, man. It'll be on me. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right, Paul. Take care. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye.